Catch Second Chance Sundays every Sunday afternoon, beginning at noon. Uh, currently, and, and again, this lineup may change, but uh, currently the block starts at noon with the repeat of It Came From Cleveland. Always a fun time. Followed by a repeat of Paul's Memory Bank at around 3. And the reason why I'm saying around is because sometimes shows run long, sometimes shows run short. So, again should be starting around the top of the hour maybe not um after paul's memory bank will be a repeat of dread time stories hi and then to cap the evening to to kind of ease you into bed to ease you into a calm placid almost jimmy carr like serenity time for go to bed with kenny pick and the Sues. I, I thought that was a better way to end the block than uh dread time stories so there you have it. Um, we may also start, you know, like I said, for now, that's the, the order we're running in. We may adjust as we go along. We may start with Paul's Mary Bank and have um, It Came From Cleveland sandwiched in between um, Paul's Memory Bank and um, Dread Time stories and Time For Go To Bed. So that that's what's going on there. Uh, I'm really excited. I hope... Uh, you know, again, if you miss our live shows or you can't, you know, you just can't get the repeat, don't get me wrong. I always encourage people to check out the podcast. We will have a podcast feed um, launching soon. But um, but again, this is just an opportunity for you to check out the fine programs we have here at uh, Rio for Humans because we do, we do work really hard on this. Um, we don't make money. Uh, we have a page. Uh, Kenny Pick has a Patreon to help defray the costs. Um, but we don't we don't have commercials on this network. We don't have sponsors, um, and that's something I will promise you right now. This show will never have sponsors. We may open a Patreon and start offering like extra recorded shows or something. I don't know, but this show isn't going to be sponsored and have commercials. It's just not going to happen. Anyway, so tonight's story um, is. A story I read, first read in college in a survey of fantasy fiction, uh, or it might have been science fiction. I took both. Let's put it that way. Um, and it does have uh, elements of both. So, 
I, you know, that, that might explain why I'm uh, a little mixed up. But um, it is the story of Rappuccini's Daughter by American writer um, Nathaniel Hawthorne. And, and the thing you need to know about Nathaniel Hawthorne is he was born almost immediately following um, the American Revolution. And so a lot of his work deals with the, the colonial era when, when we were in British colony. And he also worked in a lot of anti-Puritan uh, themes into his works. Um, or as I like to call them, Puritanicals, because they were basically tyrants. Um, but Rappuccini's daughter uh, is basically, it's kind of like Frankenstein. Um, in that it asks a question about science without ethics. And people... <laughs> People don't understand that that was what Frankenstein was about. It was it was about Frankenstein had you know was all about science, but he didn't have the ethics. He didn't have the ethics to say this isn't a good idea. Um, Rappuccini's daughter again. A, a uh, it, it's a classic story. Boy meets girl, girl meets boy. Girl has mad scientist for a father, and the girl is poison incarnate. And so the mad scientist decides, you know, my daughter needs a bow and you know, you're pretty much it, so I'm gonna make you poison just like her. Um, it's a classic story, and you will, and we will have more uh, selections from Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, in future seasons of Dread Time Stories. Um, I'm trying not to have more than one from each author um, during the, you know, for each season, just because, you know, I... One, I don't want to burn all my good material. And two, it gets boring getting the same thing over and over again. So there you go. So we're going to get things started with um, Rappuccini's Daughter. Followed, of course, by um, a Ripley's Believe It or Not bumper. Um, and we will not be doing a Strange Doctor Weird tonight. Um, this show will run a little long. Um, I think I did the math, and it will run a little long, but not much. So there you have it. Anywho, let's get ready for um, for our story, Rappuccini's Daughter. And uh, I will see you. Again, this one's a little long, about an hour. Um, so, but uh, we're, we'll get through it, I promise. Rappuccini's Daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Samantha Miles. A young man named Giovanni Guasconti came very long ago from the more southern region of Italy 
to pursue his studies at the University of Padua. Giovanni, who had but a scanty supply of gold ducats in his pocket, took lodgings in a high and gloomy chamber of an old edifice which looked not unworthy to have been the palace of a Paduan noble, and which, in fact, exhibited over its entrance the armorial bearings of a family long since extinct. The young stranger, who was not unstudied in the great poem of his country, recollected that one of the ancestors of this family, and perhaps an occupant of this very mansion, had been pictured by Dante as a partaker of the immortal agonies of his inferno. These reminiscences and associations, together with the tendency to heartbreak natural to a young man for the first time out of his native sphere, caused Giovanni to sigh heavily as he looked around the desolate and ill-furnished apartment. "'Holy Virgin, Signor!' cried old dame Lisabetta, who, won by the youth's remarkable beauty of person, was kindly endeavouring to give the chamber a habitable air. "'What a sigh was that to come out of a young man's heart!' "'Do you find this old mansion gloomy? "'For the love of heaven, then, put your head out of the window, "'and you will see as bright sunshine as you have left in Naples.' Guasconti mechanically did as the old woman advised, but could not quite agree with her that the Paduan sunshine was as cheerful as that of southern Italy. Such as it was, however, it fell upon a garden beneath the window, and expended its fostering influences on a variety of plants, which seemed to have been cultivated with exceeding care. "'Does this garden belong to the house?' asked Giovanni. "'Heaven forbid, Signor, unless it were fruitful of better pot-herbs than any that grow there now,' answered old Lisabetta. "'No, that garden is cultivated by the own hands of Signor Giacomo Rappaccini, the famous doctor who, I warrant him, has been heard of as far as Naples. It is said—' that he distills these plants into medicines that are as potent as a charm. Oftentimes you may see the signor doctor at work, and perchance the signora, his daughter, too, gathering the strange flowers that grow in the garden. The old woman had now done what she could for the aspect of the chamber, and, commending the young man to the protection of the saints, took her departure. Giovanni still found no better occupation than to look down into the garden beneath his window. From its appearance, he judged it to be one of those botanic gardens which were of earlier date in Padua than elsewhere in Italy, or in the world. Or, not improbably, it might once have been the pleasure-place of an opulent family, for there was the ruin of a marble fountain in the centre, sculptured with rare art, but so woefully shattered that it was impossible to trace the original design from the chaos of remaining fragments. The water, however, continued to gush and sparkle into the sunbeams as cheerfully as ever. A little gurgling sound ascended to the young man's window, and made him feel as if the fountain were an immortal spirit that sung its song unceasingly, and without heeding the vicissitudes around it, while one sentry embodied it in marble, and another scattered the perishable garniture on the soil. All about the pool into which the water subsided grew various plants, that seemed to require a plentiful supply of moisture for the nourishment of gigantic leaves, and in some instances flowers gorgeously magnificent. There was one shrub in particular, set in a marble vase in the midst of the pool, that bore a profusion of purple blossoms, each of which had the luster and richness of a gem, 
and the whole together it made a show so resplendent that it seemed enough to illuminate the garden, even had there been no sunshine. Every portion of the soil was peopled with plants and herbs, which, if less beautiful, still bore tokens of assiduous care, as if all had their individual virtues, known to the scientific mind that fostered them. Some were placed in urns, rich with old carving, and others in common garden-pots. Some crept serpent-like along the ground, or climbed on high, using whatever means of ascent was offered them. One plant had wreathed itself round a statue of Vertumnus, which was thus quite veiled and shrouded in a drapery of hanging foliage, so happily arranged that it might have served a sculptor for a study. While Giovanni stood at the window, he heard a rustling behind a screen of leaves, and became aware that a person was at work in the garden. His figure soon emerged into view, and showed itself to be that of no common labourer, but a tall, emaciated, sallow, and sickly-looking man, dressed in a scholar's garb of black. He was beyond the middle term of life, with grey hair, a thin grey beard, and a face singularly marked with intellect and cultivation, but which could never, even in his more youthful days, have expressed much warmth of heart. Nothing could exceed the intentness with which this scientific gardener examined every shrub which grew in his path. It seemed as if he was looking into their inmost nature, making observations in regard to their creative essence, and discovering why one leaf grew in this shape, and another in that, and wherefore such and such flowers differed among themselves in hue and perfume. Nevertheless, in spite of this deep intelligence on his part, there was no approach to intimacy between himself and these vegetable existences. On the contrary, he avoided their actual touch or the direct inhaling of their odours with a caution that impressed Giovanni most disagreeably, for the man's demeanour was that of one walking among malignant influences, such as savage beasts, or deadly snakes, or evil spirits, which, should he allow them one moment of licence, would wreak upon him some terrible fatality. It was strangely frightful to the young man's imagination to see this air of insecurity in a person cultivating a garden, that most simple and innocent of human toils, and which had been alike the joy and labour of the unfallen parents of the race. Was this garden, then, the Eden of the present world? And this man, with such a perception of harm in what his own hands caused to grow, was he the Adam? The distrustful gardener, while plucking away the dead leaves or pruning the too luxuriant growth of the shrubs, defended his hands with a pair of thick gloves. Nor were these his only armour. When, in his walk through the garden, he came to the magnificent plant that hung its purple gems beside the marble fountain, he placed a kind of mask over his mouth and nostrils, as if all this beauty did but conceal a deadlier malice. But finding his task still too dangerous, he drew back, removed the mask, and called loudly, but in the infirm voice of a person affected with inward disease, "'Beatrice! Beatrice! Here am I, my father! What would you?' cried a rich and youthful voice from the window of the opposite house, a voice as rich as a tropical sunset, and which made Giovanni, though he knew not why, think of deep hues of purple or crimson, and of perfumes heavily delectable. "'Are you in the garden?' "'Yes, Beatrice,' answered the gardener, "'and I need your help.' Soon there emerged from under a sculptured portal the figure of a young girl, 
arrayed with as much richness of taste as the most splendid of the flowers, beautiful as the day, and with a bloom so deep and vivid that one shade more would have been too much. She looked redundant with life, health, and energy, all of which attributes were bound down and compressed, as it were, and girdled tensely in their luxuriance by her virgin zone. Yet Giovanni's fancy must have grown morbid while he looked down into the garden, for the impression which the fair stranger made upon him was as if here were another flower, the human sister of those vegetable ones, as beautiful as they, more beautiful than the richest of them, but still to be touched only with a glove, nor to be approached without a mask. As Beatrice came down the garden path, it was observable that she handled and inhaled the odor of several of the plants, which her father had most sedulously avoided. "'Here, Beatrice,' said the latter, "'see how many needful offices require to be done to our chief treasure. Yet, shattered as I am, my life might pay the penalty of approaching it so closely as circumstances demand. Henceforth, I fear, this plant must be consigned to your sole charge.' "'And gladly will I undertake it!' cried again the rich tones of the young lady, as she bent towards the magnificent plant and opened her arms, as if to embrace it. "'Yes, my sister, my splendour, it shall be Beatrice's task to nurse and serve thee, and thou shalt reward her with thy kisses and perfumed breath, which to her is as the breath of life.' Then, with all the tenderness in her manner that was so strikingly expressed in her words, she busied herself with such attentions as the plant seemed to require, and Giovanni, at his lofty window, rubbed his eyes and almost doubted whether it were a girl tending her favorite flower, or one sister performing the duties of affection to another. The scene soon terminated. Whether Dr. Rappaccini had finished his labors in the garden, or that his watchful eye had caught the stranger's face, he now took his daughter's arm and retired. Night was already closing in, oppressive exhalations seemed to proceed from the plants and steal upward past the open window, and Giovanni, closing the lattice, went to his couch and dreamed of a rich flower and beautiful girl. Flower and maiden were different and yet the same, and fraught with some strange peril in either shape. But there is an influence in the light of morning that tends to rectify whatever errors of fancy or even of judgment we may have incurred during the sun's decline, or among the shadows of the night, or in the less wholesome glow of moonshine. Giovanni's first movement, on starting from sleep, was to throw open the window and gaze down into the garden which his dreams had made so fertile of mysteries. He was surprised, and a little ashamed, to find how real and matter-of-fact an affair it proved to be, in the first rays of the sun which gilded the dewdrops that hung upon leaf and blossom, and, while giving a brighter beauty to each rare flower, brought everything within the limits of ordinary experience. The young man rejoiced that, in the heart of the barren city, he had the privilege of overlooking this spot of lovely and luxuriant vegetation. It would serve, he said to himself, as a symbolic language to keep him in communion with nature. Neither the sickly and thought-worn Dr. Giacomo Rappaccini, it is true, nor his brilliant daughter were now visible, so that Giovanni could not determine how much of the singularity which he attributed to both was due to their own qualities, and how much to his wonder-working fancy. But he was inclined to take a most rational view of the whole matter. 
in the course of the day he paid his respects to signor pietro baglioni professor of medicine in the university a physician of eminent repute to whom giovanni had brought a letter of introduction the professor was an elderly personage apparently of genial nature and habits that might almost be called jovial he kept the young man to dinner and made himself very agreeable by the freedom and liveliness of his conversation especially when warmed by a flask or two of tuscan wine giovanni conceiving that men of science inhabitants of the same city must needs be on familiar terms with one another took an opportunity to mention the name of dr rappaccini but the professor did not respond with so much cordiality as he had anticipated ill would it become a teacher of the divine art of medicine said professor pietro baglioni in answer to a question of giovanni to withhold due and well-considered praise of a physician so eminently skilled as rappaccini but on the other hand i should answer it but scantily to my conscience were i to permit a worthy youth like yourself signor giovanni the son of an ancient friend to imbibe erroneous ideas respecting a man who might hereafter chance to hold your life and death in his hands the truth is our worshipful dr rappaccini has as much science as any member of the faculty with perhaps one single exception in padua or all italy but there are certain grave objections to his professional character and what are they asked the young man has my friend giovanni any disease of body or heart that he is so inquisitive about physicians said the professor with a smile but as for rappaccini it is said of him and i who know the man well can answer for its truth that he cares infinitely more for science than for mankind his patients are interesting to him only as subjects for some new experiment he would sacrifice human life his own among the rest or whatever else was dearest to him for the sake of adding so much as a grain of mustard seed to the great heap of his accumulated knowledge methinks he is an awful man indeed remarked guasconti mentally recalling the cold and purely intellectual aspect of rappaccini and yet worshipful professor is it not a noble spirit are there many men capable of so spiritual a love of science god forbid answered the professor somewhat testily at least unless they take sounder views of the healing art than those adopted by rappaccini it is his theory that all medicinal virtues are comprised within those substances which we term vegetable poisons these he cultivates with his own hands and is said even to have produced new varieties of poison more horribly deleterious than nature without the assistance of this learned person would ever have plagued the world with all that the signor doctor does less mischief than might be expected with such dangerous substances is undeniable now and then it must be owned he has effected or seemed to effect a marvellous cure but to tell you my private mind signor giovanni he should receive little credit for such instances of success they being probably the work of chance but should be held strictly accountable for his failures which may justly be considered his own work the youth might have taken baglioni's opinions with many grains of allowance 
had he known that there was a professional warfare of long continuance between him and Dr. Rappaccini, in which the latter was generally thought to have gained the advantage. If the reader be inclined to judge for himself, we refer him to certain black-letter tracts on both sides, preserved in the medical department of the University of Padua. "'I know not, most learned professor,' returned Giovanni, after musing on what had been said of Rappaccini's exclusive zeal for science, I know not how dearly this physician may love his art, but surely there is one object more dear to him. He has a daughter. Ah! cried the professor with a laugh. So now our friend Giovanni's secret is out. You have heard of this daughter whom all the young men in Padua are wild about, though not half a dozen have ever had the good hap to see her face. I know little of the signora Beatrice, save that Rappaccini is said to have instructed her deeply in his science, and that— young and beautiful as fame reports her she is already qualified to fill a professor's chair perchance her father destines her for mine other absurd rumours there be not worth talking about or listening to so now signor giovanni drink off your glass of lacrima guasconti returned to his lodgings somewhat heated with the wine he had quaffed and which caused his brain to swim with strange fantasies in reference to dr rappaccini and the beautiful beatrice on his way, happening to pass by a florist's, he bought a fresh bouquet of flowers. Ascending to his chamber, he seated himself near the window, but within the shadow thrown by the depth of the wall, so that he could look down into the garden, with little risk of being discovered. All beneath his eye was a solitude. The strange plants were basking in the sunshine, and now and then nodding gently to one another, as if an acknowledgment of sympathy and kindred. In the midst, by the shattered fountain, grew the magnificent shrub, with its purple gems clustering all over it. They glowed in the air, and gleamed back again out of the depths of the pool, which thus seemed to overflow with coloured radiance from the rich reflection that was steeped in it. At first, as we have said, the garden was a solitude. Soon, however, as Giovanni had half hoped, half feared would be the case, a figure appeared beneath the antique sculptured portal, and came down between the rows of plants, inhaling their various perfumes as if she were one of those beings of old classic fable that lived upon sweet odours. On again beholding Beatrice, the young man was even startled to perceive how much her beauty exceeded his recollection of it. So brilliant, so vivid was its character, that she glowed amid the sunlight, and, as Giovanni whispered to himself, positively illuminated the more shadowy intervals of the garden path. Her face being now more revealed than on the former occasion, he was struck by its expression of simplicity and sweetness, qualities that had not entered into his idea of her character, and which made him ask anew what manner of mortal she might be. Nor did he fail again to observe, or imagine, an analogy between the beautiful girl and the gorgeous shrub that hung its gem-like flowers over the fountain, a resemblance which Beatrice seemed to have indulged a fantastic humour in heightening, both by the arrangement of her dress and the selection of its hues. Approaching the shrub, she threw open her arms, as with a passionate ardour, and drew its branches into an intimate embrace, so intimate that her features were hidden in its leafy bosom, and her glistening ringlets all intermingled with the flowers. "'Give me thy breath, my sister,' exclaimed Beatrice, "'for I am faint with common air. "'And give me this flower of thine, 
which I separate with gentlest fingers from the stem and place it close beside my heart. With these words the beautiful daughter of Rappaccini plucked one of the richest blossoms of the shrub, and was about to fasten it in her bosom. But now, unless Giovanni's draughts of wine had bewildered his senses, a singular incident occurred. A small orange-colored reptile, of the lizard or chameleon species, chanced to be creeping along the path just at the feet of Beatrice. It appeared to Giovanni, but at the distance from which he gazed, he could scarcely have seen anything so minute. It appeared to him, however, that a drop or two of moisture from the broken stem of the flower descended upon the lizard's head. For an instant the reptile contorted itself violently, and then lay motionless in the sunshine. Beatrice observed this remarkable phenomenon and crossed herself, sadly, but without surprise, nor did she therefore hesitate to arrange the fatal flower in her bosom. There it blushed, and almost glimmered with the dazzling effect of a precious stone, adding to her dress and aspect the one appropriate charm which nothing else in the world could have supplied. But Giovanni, out of the shadow of his window, bent forward and shrank back, and murmured and trembled. "'Am I awake? Have I my senses?' said he to himself. "'What is this being? Beautiful, shall I call her, or inexpressibly terrible?' Beatrice now strayed carelessly through the garden, approaching closer beneath Giovanni's window, so that he was compelled to thrust his head quite out of its concealment, in order to gratify the intense and painful curiosity which she excited. At this moment there came a beautiful insect over the garden wall. It had, perhaps, wandered through the city, and found no flowers or verdure among those antique haunts of men, until the heavy perfumes of Dr. Rappaccini's shrubs had lured it from afar. Without alighting on the flowers, this winged brightness seemed to be attracted by Beatrice, and lingered in the air and fluttered about her head. Now, here it could not be but that Giovanni Guasconti's eyes deceived him. Be that as it might, he fancied that, while Beatrice was gazing at the insect with childish delight, it grew faint and fell at her feet, its bright wings shivered, it was dead. From no cause that he could discern, unless it were the atmosphere of her breath, Again Beatrice crossed herself and sighed heavily as she bent over the dead insect. An impulsive movement of Giovanni drew her eyes to the window. There she beheld the beautiful head of the young man, rather a Grecian than an Italian head, with fair, regular features, and a glistening of gold among his ringlets, gazing down upon her like a bean that hovered in mid-air. Scarcely knowing what he did, Giovanni threw down the bouquet which he had hitherto held in his hand. Signora, said he, there are pure and healthful flowers. Wear them for the sake of Giovanni Gusconti. Thanks, Signor, replied Beatrice, with her rich voice, that came forth as it were like a gush of music, and with a mirthful expression half childish and half womanlike. I accept your gift, and would fain recompense it with this precious purple flower, but if I toss it into the air it will not reach you. So Signor Gusconti must even content himself with my thanks. She lifted the bouquet from the ground, and then, as if inwardly ashamed at having stepped aside from her maidenly reserve to respond to a stranger's greeting, passed swiftly homeward through the garden. But few as the moments were, it seemed to Giovanni, when she was on the point of vanishing beneath the sculptured portal, that this beautiful bouquet was already beginning to wither in her grasp. It was an idle thought 
there could be no possibility of distinguishing a faded flower from a fresh one at so great a distance for many days after this incident the young man avoided the window that looked into dr rappaccini's garden as if something ugly and monstrous would have blasted his eyesight had he been betrayed into a glance he felt conscious of having put himself to a certain extent within the influence of an unintelligible power by the communication which he had opened with beatrice the wisest course would have been if his heart were in any real danger to quit his lodgings and padua itself at once the next wiser to have accustomed himself as far as possible to the familiar and daylight view of beatrice thus bringing her rigidly and systematically within the limits of ordinary experience least of all while avoiding her sight ought giovanni to have remained so near this extraordinary being that the proximity and possibility even of intercourse should give a kind of substance and reality to the wild vagaries which his imagination ran riot continually in producing guasconti had not a deep heart or at all events its depths were not sounded now but he had a quick fancy and an ardent southern temperament which rose every instant to a higher fever pitch whether or no beatrice possessed those terrible attributes that fatal breath the affinity with those so beautiful and deadly flowers which were indicated by what giovanni had witnessed she had at least instilled a fierce and subtle poison into his system it was not love although her rich beauty was a madness to him nor horror even while he fancied her spirit to be imbued with the same baneful essence that seemed to pervade her physical frame but a wild offspring of both love and horror that had each parent in it and burned like one and shivered like the other giovanni knew not what to dread still less did he know what to hope yet hope and dread kept a continual warfare in his breast alternately vanquishing one another and starting up afresh to renew the contest blessed are all simple emotions be they dark or bright it is the lurid intermixture of the two that produces the illuminating blaze of the infernal regions sometimes he endeavored to assuage the fever of his spirit by a rapid walk through the streets of padua or beyond its gates his footsteps kept time with the throbbings of his brain so that the walk was apt to accelerate itself to a race one day he found himself arrested his arm was seized by a portly personage who had turned back on recognizing the young man and expended much breath in overtaking him signor giovanni stay my young friend cried he have you forgotten me that might well be the case if i were as much altered as yourself it was baglioni whom giovanni had avoided ever since their first meeting from a doubt that the professor's sagacity would look too deeply into his secrets endeavouring to recover himself he stared forth wildly from his inner world into the outer one and spoke like a man in a dream yes i am giovanni guasconti you are professor pietro baglioni now let me pass not yet not yet signor giovanni guasconti said the professor smiling but at the same time scrutinizing the youth with an earnest glance what did i grow up side by side with your father and shall his son pass me like a stranger in these old streets of padua stand still signor giovanni for we must have a word or two before we part speedily then most worshipful professor speedily said giovanni with feverish impatience does not your worship see that i am in haste now while he was speaking there came a man in black along the street stooping and moving feebly like a person in inferior health 
His face was all overspread with a most sickly and sallow hue, but yet so pervaded with an expression of piercing and active intellect that an observer might easily have overlooked the merely physical attributes and have seen only this wonderful energy. As he passed, this person exchanged a cold and distant salutation with Baglioni, but fixed his eyes upon Giovanni with an intentness that seemed to bring out whatever was within him worthy of notice. Nevertheless, there was a peculiar quietness in the look, as if taking merely a speculative, not a human interest, in the young man. "'It is Dr. Rappaccini,' whispered the professor when the stranger had passed. "'Has he ever seen your face before?' "'Not that I know,' answered Giovanni, starting at the name. "'He has seen you! He must have seen you!' said Baglioni hastily. "'For some purpose or other, this man of science is making a study of you. I know that look of his!' It is the same that coldly illuminates his face as he bends over a bird, or a mouse, or a butterfly, which, in pursuance of some experiment, he has killed by the perfume of a flower, a look as deep as nature itself, but without nature's warmth of love. Signor Giovanni, I will stake my life upon it. You are the subject of one of Rappaccini's experiments. Will you make a fool of me? cried Giovanni passionately. That, Signor Professor, were an untoward experiment. "'Patience, patience!' replied the imperturbable professor. "'I tell thee, my poor Giovanni, that Rappaccini has a scientific interest in thee. Thou hast fallen into fearful hands. And the Signora Beatrice, what part does she act in this mystery?' But Guisconti, finding Baglioni's pertinacity intolerable, here broke away, and was gone before the professor could again seize his arm. He looked after the young man intently and shook his head. "'This must not be.' said Baglioni to himself. The youth is the son of my old friend, and shall not come to any harm from which the arcana of medical science can preserve him. Besides, it is too insufferable an impertinence in Rappaccini thus to snatch the lad out of my own hands, as I may say, and make use of him for his infernal experiments. This daughter of his, it shall be looked to. Perchance, most learned Rappaccini, I may foil you where you little dream of it. Meanwhile, Giovanni had pursued a circuitous route, and at length found himself at the door of his lodgings. As he crossed the threshold, he was met by old Lisabetta, who smirked and smiled, and was evidently desirous to attract his attention, vainly, however, as the ebullition of his feelings had momentarily subsided into a cold and dull vacuity. He turned his eyes full upon the withered face that was puckering itself into a smile, but seemed to behold it not. The old dame, therefore, laid her grasp upon his cloak. "'Signor, signor!' whispered she, still with a smile over the whole breadth of her visage, so that it looked not unlike a grotesque carving in wood, darkened by sentries. "'Listen, signor! There is a private entrance into the garden.' "'What do you say?' exclaimed Giovanni, turning quickly about, as if an inanimate thing should start into feverish life. "'A private entrance into Dr. Rappaccini's garden?' "'Hush, hush, not so loud!' whispered Lisabetta, putting her hand over his mouth. "'Yes, into the worshipful doctor's garden, where you may see all his fine shrubbery. Many a young man in Padua would give gold to be admitted among those flowers.' Giovanni put a piece of gold into her hand. "'Show me the way,' said he. A surmise, probably excited by his conversation with Baglioni, crossed his mind, that this interposition of old Lisabetta might perchance be connected with the intrigue, whatever were its nature, in which the professor seemed to suppose that Dr. Rappaccini was involving him. 
but such a suspicion though it disturbed giovanni was inadequate to restrain him the instant that he was aware of the possibility of approaching beatrice it seemed an absolute necessity of his existence to do so it mattered not whether she were angel or demon he was irrevocably within her sphere and must obey the law that whirled him onward in ever-lessening circles towards a result which he did not attempt to foreshadow and yet strange to say there came across him a sudden doubt whether this intense interest on his part were not delusory whether it were really of so deep and positive a nature as to justify him in now thrusting himself into an incalculable position whether it were not merely the fantasy of a young man's brain only slightly or not at all connected with his heart he paused hesitated turned half about but again went on his withered guide led him along several obscure passages and finally undid a door through which as it was opened there came the sight and sound of rustling leaves with the broken sunshine glimmering among them giovanni stepped forth and forcing himself through the entanglement of a shrub that wreathed its tendrils over the hidden entrance stood beneath his own window in the open area of dr rappaccini's garden how often is it the case that when impossibilities have come to pass and dreams have condensed their misty substance into tangible realities we find ourselves calm and even coldly self-possessed amid circumstances which it would have been a delirium of joy or agony to anticipate fate delights to thwart us thus passion will choose his own time to rush upon the scene and lingers sluggishly behind when an appropriate adjustment of events would seem to summon his appearance so was it now with giovanni day after day his pulses had throbbed with feverish blood at the improbable idea of an interview with beatrice and of standing with her face to face in this very garden basking in the oriental sunshine of her beauty and snatching from her full gaze the mystery which he deemed the riddle of his own existence but now there was a singular and untimely equanimity within his breast he threw a glance around the garden to discover if beatrice or her father were present and perceiving that he was alone began a critical observation of the plants the aspect of one and all of them dissatisfied him their gorgeousness seemed fierce passionate and even unnatural there was hardly an individual shrub which a wanderer straying by himself through a forest would not have been startled to find growing wild as if an unearthly face had glared at him out of the thicket several also would have shocked a delicate instinct by an appearance of artificialness indicating that there had been such commixture and as it were adultery of various vegetable species that the production was no longer of god's making but the monstrous offspring of man's depraved fancy glowing with only an evil mockery of beauty they were probably the result of experiment which in one or two cases had succeeded in mingling plants individually lovely into a compound possessing the questionable and ominous character that distinguished the whole growth of the garden in fine giovanni recognized but two or three plants in the collection and those of a kind that he well knew to be poisonous while busy with these contemplations he heard the rustling of a silken garment and turning beheld beatrice emerging from beneath the sculptured portal giovanni had not considered with himself what should be his deportment whether he should apologize for his intrusion into the garden or assume that he was there with the privity at least if not by the desire of dr rappaccini or his daughter but beatrice's manner placed him at his ease though leaving him still in doubt by what agency he had gained admittance 
she came lightly along the path and met him near the broken fountain. There was surprise in her face, but brightened by a simple and kind expression of pleasure. "'You are a connoisseur in flowers, signor,' said Beatrice, with a smile, alluding to the bouquet which he had flung her from the window. "'It is no marvel, therefore, if the sight of my father's rare collection has tempted you to take a nearer view. If he were here, he could tell you many strange and interesting facts as to the nature and habits of these shrubs, for he has spent a lifetime in such studies, and this garden is his world.' "'And yourself, lady,' observed Giovanni, if fame says true, you likewise are deeply skilled in the virtues indicated by these rich blossoms and these spicy perfumes. Would you deign to be my instructress? I should prove an after-scholar, and have taught by Signor Rappaccini himself. Are there such idle rumors? asked Beatrice, with the music of a pleasant laugh. Do people say that I am skilled in my father's science of plants? What a jest is there! No, though I have grown up among these flowers, I know no more of them than their hues and perfume, and sometimes, methinks, I would fain rid myself of even that small knowledge. There are many flowers here, and those not the least brilliant, that shock and offend me when they meet my eye. But pray, signor, do not believe these stories about my science. Believe nothing of me save what you see with your own eyes. And must I believe all that I have seen with my own eyes? asked Giovanni pointedly, while the recollection of former scenes made him shrink. No, signora, you demand too little of me. Bid me believe nothing save what comes from your own lips. It would appear that Beatrice understood him. There came a deep flush to her cheek, but she looked full into Giovanni's eyes, and responded to his gaze of uneasy suspicion with a queen-like haughtiness. I do so bid you, signor, she replied. Forget whatever you may have fancied in regard to me. If true to the outward senses, still it may be false in its essence. But the words of Beatrice Rappaccini's lips are true from the depths of the heart outward. Those you may believe. A fervor glowed in her whole aspect, and beamed upon Giovanni's consciousness like the light of truth itself. But while she spoke, there was a fragrance in the atmosphere around her, rich and delightful, though evanescent, yet which the young man, from an indefinable reluctance, scarcely dared to draw into his lungs. It might be the odor of the flowers. Could it be Beatrice's breath which thus embalmed her words with a strange richness, as if by steeping them in her heart? A faintness passed like a shadow over Giovanni, and flitted away. He seemed to gaze through the beautiful girl's eyes into her transparent soul, and felt no more doubt or fear. The tinge of passion that had colored Beatrice's manner vanished, she became gay, and appeared to derive a pure delight from her communion with the youth, not unlike what the maiden of a lonely island might have felt conversing with a voyager from the civilized world. Evidently her experience of life had been confined within the limits of that garden. She talked now about matters as simple as the daylight or summer clouds, and now asked questions in reference to the city, or Giovanni's distant home his friends, his mothers, and his sisters, questions indicating such seclusion and such lack of familiarity with modes and forms that Giovanni responded as if to an infant. Her spirit gushed out before him like a fresh rill that was just catching its first glimpse of the sunlight and wondering at the reflections of earth and sky which were flung into its bosom. There came thoughts, too, from a deep source 
and fantasies of a gem-like brilliancy, as if diamonds and rubies sparkled upward among the bubbles of the fountain. Ever and anon there gleamed across the young man's mind a sense of wonder that he should be walking side by side with the beam who had so wrought upon his imagination, whom he had idealized in such hues of terror, and whom he had positively witnessed such manifestations of dreadful attributes, that he should be conversing with Beatrice like a brother, and should find her so human and so maidenlike. But such reflections were only momentary. The effect of her character was too real not to make itself familiar at once. In this free intercourse they had strayed through the garden, and now, after many turns among its avenues, were come to the shattered fountain, beside which grew the magnificent shrub with its treasury of glowing blossoms. A fragrance was diffused from it which Giovanni recognized as identical with that which he had attributed to Beatrice's breath, but incomparably more powerful. As her eyes fell upon it, Giovanni beheld her press her hand to her bosom as if her heart were throbbing suddenly and painfully. "'For the first time in my life,' murmured she, addressing the shrub, "'I had forgotten thee.' "'I remember, Signora,' said Giovanni, "'that you once promised to reward me with one of these living gems for the bouquet which I had the happy boldness to fling to your feet. Permit me now to pluck it as a memorial of this interview.' He made a step towards the shrub with extended hand, but Beatrice darted forward, uttering a shriek that went through his heart like a dagger. She caught his hand and drew it back with the whole force of her slender figure. Giovanni felt her touch thrilling through his fibres. "'Touch it not!' exclaimed she, in a voice of agony. "'Not for thy life! It is fatal!' Then, hiding her face, she fled from him and vanished beneath the sculptured portal. As Giovanni followed her with his eyes, he beheld the emaciated figure and pale intelligence of Dr. Rappaccini, who had been watching the scene, he knew not how long, within the shadow of the entrance. No sooner was Gusconti alone in his chamber than the image of Beatrice came back to his passionate musings, invested with all the witchery that had been gathering around it ever since his first glimpse of her, and now likewise imbued with the tender warmth of girlish womanhood. She was human, her nature was endowed with all gentle and feminine qualities. She was worthiest to be worshipped. She was capable, surely on her part, of the height and heroism of love. Those tokens which she had hitherto considered as proofs of a frightful peculiarity in her physical and moral system were now either forgotten, or, by the subtle sophistry of passion transmitted into a golden crown of enchantment, rendering Beatrice the more admirable by so much as she was the more unique, Whatever had looked ugly was now beautiful, or, if incapable of such a change, it stole away and hid itself among those shapeless half-ideas which throng the dim region beyond the daylight of our perfect consciousness. Thus did he spend the night, nor fell asleep until the dawn had begun to awake the slumbering flowers in Dr. Rappaccini's garden, whither Giovanni's dreams doubtless led him. Up rose the sun in his due season and flinging his beams upon the young man's eyelids, awoke him to a sense of pain. When thoroughly aroused, he became sensible of a burning and tingling agony in his hand, in his right hand, the very hand which Beatrice had grasped in her own, when he was on the point of plucking one of the gem-like flowers. On the back of that hand there was now a purple print like that of four small fingers, and the likeness of a slender thumb upon his wrist. Oh, how stubbornly does love! 
or even that cunning semblance of love which flourishes in the imagination, but strikes no depth of root into the heart, how stubbornly does it hold its faith until the moment comes when it is doomed to vanish into thin mist! Giovanni wrapped a handkerchief about his hand, and wondered what evil thing had stung him, and soon forgot his pain in a reverie of Beatrice. After the first interview, a second was in the inevitable course of what we call fate, a third, a fourth, and a meeting with Beatrice in the garden was no longer an incident in Giovanni's daily life, but the whole space in which he might be said to live, for the anticipation and memory of that ecstatic hour made up the remainder. Nor was it otherwise with the daughter of Rappaccini. She watched for the youth's appearance, and flew to his side with confidence as unreserved as if they had been playmates from early infancy, as if they were such playmates still. If, by any unwanted chance, he failed to come at the appointed moment, she stood beneath the window, and sent up the rich sweetness of her tones to float around him in his chamber, and echo and reverberate throughout his heart. "'Giovanni! Giovanni! Why tarriest thou? Come down!' and down he hastened into that Eden of poisonous flowers. But, with all this intimate familiarity, there was still a reserve in Beatrice's demeanour, so rigidly and invariably sustained, that the idea of infringing it scarcely occurred to his imagination. By all appreciable signs they loved. They had looked love with eyes that conveyed the holy secret from the depths of one soul into the depths of the other, as if it were too sacred to be whispered by the way. They had even spoken love, in those gushes of passion, when their spirits darted forth in articulated breath like tongues of long-hidden flame. And yet there had been no seal of lips, no clasp of hands, nor any slightest caress such as love claims and hallows. He had never touched one of the gleaming ringlets of her hair, her garment, so marked was the physical barrier between them, had never been waved against him by a breeze. On the few occasions when Giovanni had seemed tempted to overstep the limit, Beatrice grew so sad, so stern, with all wore such a look of desolate separation, shuddering at itself, that not a spoken word was requisite to repel him. At such times he was startled at the horrible suspicions that rose, monster-like, out of the caverns of his heart, and stared him in the face. His love grew thin and faint as the morning mist, his doubts alone had substance. But— when Beatrice's face brightened again after the momentary shadow, she was transformed at once from the mysterious, questionable being whom he had watched with so much awe and horror. She was now the beautiful and unsophisticated girl whom he felt that his spirit knew with a certainty beyond all other knowledge. A considerable time had now passed since Giovanni's last meeting with Baglioni. One morning, however, he was disagreeably surprised by a visit from the professor, whom he had scarcely thought of for whole weeks, and would willingly have forgotten still longer. Given up as he had long been to a pervading excitement, he could tolerate no companions except upon condition of their perfect sympathy with his present state of feeling. Such sympathy was not to be expected from Professor Baglioni. The visitor chatted carelessly for a few moments about the gossip of the city and the university, and then took up another topic. "'I have been reading an old classic author lately,' said he, "'and met with a story that strangely interested me. "'Possibly you may remember it. "'It is of an Indian prince who sent a beautiful woman "'as a present to Alexander the Great. "'She was as lovely as the dawn and gorgeous as the sunset, "'but what especially distinguished her "'was a certain 
rich perfume in her breath, richer than a garden of Persian roses. Alexander, as was natural to a youthful conqueror, fell in love at first sight with this magnificent stranger, but a certain sage physician, happening to be present, discovered a terrible secret in regard to her. And what was that? asked Giovanni, turning his eyes downward to avoid those of the professor. That this lovely woman, continued Baglioni with emphasis, had been nourished with poisons from her birth upward, until her whole nature was so imbued with them that she herself had become the deadliest poison in existence. Poison was her element of life. With that rich perfume of her breath she blasted the very air. Her love would have been poison, her embrace death. Is not this a marvellous tale? A childish fable, answered Giovanni, nervously starting from his chair. I marvel how your worship finds time to read such nonsense among your graver studies. By the by, said the professor, looking on easily about him, what singular fragrance is this in your apartment? Is it the perfume of your gloves? It is faint but delicious, and yet, after all, by no means agreeable. Were I to breathe it long, he thinks it would make me ill. It is like the breath of a flower, but I see no flowers in the chamber. Nor are there any, replied Giovanni, who had turned pale as the professor spoke. Nor, I think, is there any fragrance except in your worship's imagination. Odors, being a sort of element combined of the sensual and the spiritual, are apt to deceive us in this manner. The recollection of a perfume, the bare idea of it, may easily be mistaken for a present reality. "'Aye, but my sober imagination does not often play such tricks,' said Baglioni, "'and, were I to fancy any kind of odour, it would be that of some vile apothecary drug, wherewith my fingers are likely enough to be imbued. Our worshipful friend Rappaccini, as I have heard, tinctures his medicaments with odours richer than those of Araby.' Doubtless, likewise, the fair and learned Signora Beatrice would minister to her patients with draughts as sweet as a maiden's breath. But woe to him that sips them! Giovanni's face evinced many contending emotions. The tone in which the professor alluded to the pure and lovely daughter of Rappaccini was a torture to his soul, and yet the intimation of a view of her character opposite to his own gave instantaneous distinctness to a thousand dim suspicions which now grinned at him like so many demons. But he strove hard to quell them, and to respond to Baglioni with a true lover's perfect faith. Signor Professor, said he, you were my father's friend. Perchance, too, it is your purpose to act a friendly part towards his son. I would fain feel nothing towards you, save respect and deference. But I pray you to observe, Signor, that there is one subject on which we must not speak. You know not the Signora Beatrice, you cannot, therefore, estimate the wrong, the blasphemy, I may even say, that is offered to her character by a light or injurious word. Giovanni, my poor Giovanni, answered the professor, with a calm expression of pity, I know this wretched girl far better than yourself. You shall hear the truth in respect to the poisoner Rappaccini and his poisonous daughter. Yes, poisonous, as she is beautiful. Listen, for even should you do violence to my grey hairs, it shall not silence me. That old fable of the Indian woman has become a truth by the deep and deadly science of Rappaccini and in the person of the lovely Beatrice. Giovanni groaned and hid his face. Her father, continued Baglioni, 
was not restrained by natural affection from offering up his child in this horrible manner as the victim of his insane zeal for science for let us do him justice he is as true a man of science as ever distilled his own heart in an alembic what then will be your fate beyond a doubt you are selected as the material of some new experiment perhaps the result is to be death perhaps a fate more awful still Rappuccini, with what he calls the interest of science before his eyes, will hesitate at nothing. It is a dream, muttered Giovanni to himself. Surely it is a dream. But, resumed the professor, be of good cheer, son of my friend. It is not too late for the rescue. Possibly we may even succeed in bringing back this miserable child within the limits of ordinary nature from which her father's madness has estranged her. Behold this little silver vase. It was wrought by the hands of the renowned Benvenuto Cellini, and is well worthy to be a love-gift to the fairest dame in Italy. But its contents are invaluable. One little sip of this antidote would have rendered the most virulent poisons of the Borgias innocuous. Doubt not that it will be as efficacious against those of Rappuccini. Bestow the vase and the precious liquid within it on your Beatrice, and hopefully await the result." Baglioni laid a small, exquisitely wrought silver vial on the table and withdrew, leaving what he had said to produce its effect upon the young man's mind. "'You will thwart Raffaccini yet,' thought he, chuckling to himself, as he descended the stairs. "'But let us confess the truth of him. He is a wonderful man, a wonderful man indeed, a vile empiric, however, in his practice, and therefore not to be tolerated by those who respect the good old rules of the medical profession.' Throughout Giovanni's whole acquaintance with Beatrice, he had, occasionally, as we have said, been haunted by dark surmises as to her character, yet so thoroughly had she made herself felt by him as a simple, natural, most affectionate, and guileless creature, that the image now held up by Professor Baglioni looked as strange and incredible as if it were not in accordance with his own original conception. True, there were ugly recollections connected with his first glimpses of the beautiful girl, he could not quite forget the bouquet that withered in her grasp, and the insect that perished amid the sunny air, by no ostensible agency save the fragrance of her breath. These incidents, however, dissolving in the pure light of her character, had no longer the efficacy of facts, but were acknowledged as mistaken fantasies, by whatever testimony of the senses they might appear to be substantiated. There is something truer and more real than what we can see with the eyes and touch with the finger. On such better evidence had Giovanni founded his confidence in Beatrice, though rather by the necessary force of her high attributes than by any deep and generous faith on his part. But now his spirit was incapable of sustaining itself at the height to which the early enthusiasm of passion had exalted it. He fell down, groveling among earthly doubts, and defiled therewith the pure whiteness of Beatrice's image. Not that he gave her up, he did but distrust. He resolved to institute some decisive test that should satisfy him, once for all, whether there were those dreadful peculiarities in her physical nature which could not be supposed to exist without some corresponding monstrosity of soul. His eyes, gazing down afar, might have deceived him as to the lizard, the insect, and the flowers. But if he could witness, at the distance of a few paces, the sudden blight of one fresh and healthful flower in Beatrice's hand, there would be room for no further question. With this idea 
he hastened to the florist's and purchased a bouquet that was still gemmed with the morning dewdrops. It was now the customary hour of his daily interview with Beatrice. Before descending into the garden, Giovanni failed not to look at his figure in the mirror, a vanity to be expected in a beautiful young man, yet as displaying itself at that troubled and feverish moment the token of a certain shallowness of feeling and insincerity of character. He did gaze, however, and said to himself that his features had never before possessed so rich a grace, nor his eyes such vivacity, nor his cheeks so warm a hue of superabundant life. At least, thought he, her poison has not yet insinuated itself into my system. I am no flower to perish in her grasp. With that thought he turned his eyes on the bouquet, which he had never once laid aside from his hand. A thrill of indefinable horror shot through his frame on perceiving that those dewy flowers were already beginning to droop. They wore the aspect of things that had been fresh and lovely yesterday. Giovanni grew white as marble and stood motionless before the mirror, staring at his own reflection there as at the likeness of something frightful. He remembered Baglioni's remark about the fragrance that seemed to pervade the chamber. It must have been the poison in his breath. Then he shuddered, shuddered at himself. Recovering from his stupor, he began to watch with curious eye a spider that was busily at work, hanging its web from the antique cornice of the apartment, crossing and recrossing the artful system of interwoven lines, as vigorous and active a spider as ever dangled from an old ceiling. Giovanni bent towards the insect and emitted a deep, long breath. The spider suddenly ceased its toil. The web vibrated with a tremor originating in the body of the small artisan. Again, Giovanni sent forth a breath, deeper, longer, and imbued with a venomous feeling out of his heart. He knew not whether he were wicked or only desperate. The spider made a convulsive gripe with his limbs and hung dead across the window. Accursed! Accursed! muttered Giovanni, addressing himself. Hast thou grown so poisonous that this deadly insect perishes by thy breath? At that moment a rich, sweet voice came floating up from the garden. "'Giovanni! Giovanni! It is past the hour! Why tarriest thou? Come down!' "'Yes,' muttered Giovanni again. "'She is the only being whom my breath may not slay. Would that it might!' He rushed down, and in an instant was standing before the bright and loving eyes of Beatrice. A moment ago his wrath and despair had been so fierce that he could have desired nothing so much as to wither her by a glance but with her actual presence there came influences which had too real an existence to be at once shaken off, recollections of the delicate and benign power of her feminine nature, which had so often enveloped him in a religious calm, recollections of many a holy and passionate outgush of her heart, when the pure fountain had been unsealed from its depths, and made visible in its transparency to his mental eye, recollections which, had Giovanni known how to estimate them, would have assured him that all this ugly mystery was but an earthly illusion, and that, whatever mist of evil might seem to have gathered over her, the real Beatrice was a heavenly angel. Incapable as he was of such high faith, still her presence had not utterly lost its magic. Giovanni's rage was quelled into an aspect of sullen insensibility. Beatrice, with a quick spiritual sense, immediately felt that there was a gulf of blackness between them, which neither he nor she could pass. They walked on together, sad and silent, and came thus to the marble fountain, and to its pool of water on the ground, in the midst of which grew the shrub that bore gem-like blossoms. 
Giovanni was affrighted at the eager enjoyment, the appetite, as it were, with which he found himself inhaling the fragrance of the flowers. "'Beatrice,' asked he abruptly, "'whence came this shrub?' "'My father created it,' answered she with simplicity. "'Created it! Created it!' repeated Giovanni. "'What mean you, Beatrice?' "'He is a man fearfully acquainted with the secrets of nature,' replied Beatrice, "'and, at the hour when I first drew breath, this plant sprang from the soil, the offspring of his science, of his intellect, while I was but his earthly child.' "'Approach it not!' continued she, observing with terror that Giovanni was drawing near to the shrub. "'It has qualities that you little dream of.' "'But I, dearest Giovanni,' I grew up and blossomed with the plant, and was nourished with its breath. It was my sister, and I loved it with a human affection, for, alas, hast thou not suspected it? There was an awful doom. Here Giovanni frowned so darkly upon her that Beatrice paused and trembled, but her faith in his tenderness reassured her, and made her blush that she had doubted for an instant. There was an awful doom, she continued, the effect of my father's fatal love of science, which estranged me from all society of my kind. Until heaven sent thee, dearest Giovanni, oh, how lonely was thy poor Beatrice! Was it a hard doom? asked Giovanni, fixing his eyes upon her. Only of late have I known how hard it was, answered she tenderly. Oh, yes, but my heart was torpid, and therefore quiet. Giovanni's rage broke forth from his sullen gloom like a lightning flash out of a dark cloud. "'Accursed one!' cried he, with venomous scorn and anger. "'And, finding thy solitude wearisome, thou hast severed me likewise from all the warmth of life, and enticed me into thy region of unspeakable horror!' "'Giovanni!' exclaimed Beatrice, turning her large bright eyes upon his face. The force of his words had not found its way into her mind. She was merely thunderstruck. "'Yes, poisonous thing,' repeated Giovanni, beside himself with passion. "'Thou hast done it. Thou hast blasted me. Thou hast filled my veins with poison. Thou hast made me as hateful, as ugly, as loathsome and deadly a creature as thyself, a world's wonder of hideous monstrosity. Now, if our breath be happily as fatal to ourselves as to all others, let us join our lips in one kiss of unutterable hatred, and so die. What has befallen me?' murmured Beatrice, with a low moan out of her heart. "'Holy Virgin, pity me, O poor heart-broken child!' "'Thou—dost thou pray?' cried Giovanni, still with the same fiendish scorn. "'Thy very prayers, as they come from thy lips, taint the atmosphere with death. Yes, yes, let us pray. Let us to church and dip our fingers in the holy water at the portal. They that come after us will perish as by a pestilence. Let us sign crosses in the air.' It will be scattering curses abroad in the likeness of holy symbols. Giovanni, said Beatrice calmly, for her grief was beyond passion, why dost thou join thyself with me thus in those terrible words? I, it is true, am the horrible thing thou namest me. But thou, what hast thou to do? Save with one other shudder at my hideous misery to go forth out of the garden and mingle with thy race, and forget there ever crawled on earth such a monster as poor Beatrice. "'Dost thou pretend ignorance?' asked Giovanni, scowling upon her. "'Behold! This power have I gained from the pure daughter of Rappaccini.' There was a swarm of summer insects flitting through the air in search of the food promised by the flower odors of the fatal garden. 
They circled round Giovanni's head, and were evidently attracted towards him by the same influence which had drawn them for an instant within the sphere of several of the shrubs. He sent forth a breath among them, and smiled bitterly at Beatrice, as at least a score of the insects fell dead upon the ground. "'I see it! I see it!' shrieked Beatrice. "'It is my father's fatal science! No, no, Giovanni, it was not I! Never! Never! I dreamed only to love thee, and be with thee a little time, and so to let thee pass away, leaving but thine image in mine heart. For, Giovanni, believe it, though my body be nourished with poison, my spirit is God's creature, and craves love as its daily food. But my father, he has united us in this fearful sympathy. Yes, spurn me, tread upon me, kill me. Oh, what is death after such words as thine? But it was not I. Not for a world of bliss would I have done it. Giovanni's passion had exhausted itself in its outburst from his lips. There now came across him a sense, mournful, and not without tenderness, of the intimate and peculiar relationship between Beatrice and himself. They stood, as it were, in an utter solitude, which would be made none the less solitary by the densest throng of human life. Ought not, then, the desert of humanity around them to press this insulated pair closer together? If they should be cruel to one another, who was there to be kind to them? Besides, thought Giovanni, might there not still be a hope of his returning within the limits of ordinary nature, and leading Beatrice, the redeemed Beatrice, by the hand? O weak and selfish and onworthy spirit, that could dream of an earthly union and earthly happiness as possible, after such deep love had been so bitterly wronged, as was Beatrice's love by Giovanni's blighting words. No, no, there could be no such hope. She must pass heavily, with that broken heart, across the borders of time. She must bathe her hurts in some fount of paradise, and forget her grief in the light of immortality, and there be well. But Giovanni did not know it. "'Dear Beatrice,' said he, approaching her, while she shrank away as always at his approach, but now with a different impulse. "'Dearest Beatrice, our fate is not yet so desperate. Behold, there is a medicine, potent, as a wise physician has assured me, and almost divine in its efficiency. It is composed of ingredients the most opposite to those by which thy awful father has brought this calamity upon thee and me. It is distilled of blessed herbs. Shall we not quaff it together?' and thus be purified from evil? "'Give it me!' said Beatrice, extending her hand to receive the little silver vial which Giovanni took from his bosom. She added, with a peculiar emphasis, "'I will drink, but do thou await the result.' She put Baglioni's antidote to her lips, and at the same moment the figure of Rappaccini emerged from the portal and came slowly towards the marble fountain. As he drew near, the pale man of science seemed to gaze with a triumphant expression at the beautiful youth and maiden, as might an artist who should spend his life in achieving a picture or a group of statuary, and finally be satisfied with his success. He paused, his bent form grew erect with conscious power, he spread out his hands over them in the attitude of a father imploring a blessing upon his children, but those were the same hands that had thrown poison into the stream of their lives. Giovanni trembled. Beatrice shuddered nervously, and pressed her hand upon her heart. "'My daughter,' said Rappaccini, "'thou art no longer lonely in the world. Pluck one of those precious gems from thy sister's shrub, and bid thy bridegroom wear it in his bosom. It will not harm him now. My science and the sympathy between thee and him have so wrought within his system that he now stands apart from common men, as thou dost, daughter of my pride and triumph, from ordinary women. Pass on, then, through the world, 
most dear to one another, and dreadful to all besides. My father, said Beatrice feebly, and still as she spoke she kept her hand upon her heart, wherefore didst thou inflict this miserable doom upon thy child? Miserable? exclaimed Rappaccini. What mean you, foolish girl? Dost thou deem it misery to be endowed with marvellous gifts, against which no power nor strength could avail an enemy? Misery, to be able to quell the mightiest with a breath? Misery, to be as terrible as thou art beautiful? Wouldst thou, then, have preferred the condition of a weak woman, exposed to all evil, and capable of none? I would fain have been loved, not feared, murmured Beatrice, sinking down upon the ground. But now it matters not. I am going, father, where the evil which thou hast striven to mingle with my being will pass away dreamlike the fragrance of these poisonous flowers, which will no longer taint my breath among the flowers of Eden. Farewell, Giovanni. Thy words of hatred are like lead within my heart, but they too will fall away as I ascend. Oh, was there not, from the first, more poison in thy nature than in mine? To Beatrice, so radically had her earthly part been wrought upon by Rappaccini's skill. As poison had been life, so the powerful antidote was death, and thus the poor victim of man's ingenuity and of thwarted nature, and of the fatality that attends all such efforts of perverted wisdom, perished there at the feet of her father and Giovanni. Just at that moment Professor Pietro Baglioni looked forth from the window, and called loudly, in a tone of triumph mixed with horror, to the thunder-stricken man of science, "'Rappaccini! Rappaccini! And is this the upshot of your experiment?' End of Rappaccini's Daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne Truth is stranger than fiction, and this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. The steeple of the parish church of Eccles, England, was buried under sand by a gale in 1605 and was exposed again by high winds 275 years later. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you the strange story of George Thompson. One of the most unusual expressions of sorrow was shown by George Thompson of Pomfret, Connecticut, who literally clothed himself in sadness. He did it as a mourning gesture for his fiancée, who died on the eve of their marriage. As a constant reminder of his great loss, he wore the clothing that he had planned to wear on his wedding day for the remaining 30 years of his life, believe it or not. <laughs> back after that rather long segment 
Uh, that was Rappuccini's Daughter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And I gotta say, not many like... I mean, the only character in that story I really like and appreciate is Beatrice. Because everyone else is just kind of a jerk. Baglioni only cares about foiling Rappuccini. He's not trying to save Giovanni. No. It just so happens that saving Giovanni will will uh, screw with, with uh, Rappuccini. Of course, Rappuccini is an, is a monster. He's basically a sociopath. Brilliant scientist. Again, just like Frankenstein. Brilliant scientist. No ethics. No soul. Gives birth to a monster. And of course, Giovanni just acts like a lovesick puppy. So when someone tells him, hey, you've got a problem. He's like, oh, no, you just don't want me to be with Beatrice. So again, not many likable characters in this story. Not many likable characters at all. <laughs> Excuse me. But uh, it is a good story. And uh, we, we, you know, I, I liked it. I enjoy it. So we're going to get ready to do uh, our, um, the next episode of the Magnus Archives. Uh, episode three across the street um and then uh we'll do our old time well crap we are going to skip the old time radio segment and just go straight to um and uh instead of doing old time radio we're just going to go to um the pod people after this is done so without further ado one moment, please. Uh, we are going to uh, get ready to do. Um, damn, the Magnus Archives episode three. Across the street. And cue cart playback. All right, we'll be right back in about half an hour. Rusty Quill presents The Magnus Archives Episode 3 Across the Street
Statement of Amy Patel regarding the alleged disappearance of her acquaintance, Graham Folger. Original statement given July 1st, 2007. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. I first met Graham two years ago, more or less. It's hard to say exactly when we first met or even started talking, as we were taking a class together at the time. I'm sure there was plenty of discussion or interaction before we learned each other's names, but I started uh, my course in September of 2005, so yeah, about two years. I had decided to take a criminology course at Birkbeck University as a way of getting out of the rut with my office job. I'm an associate compliance analyst at Deloitte, and if you think that sounds boring, well, yeah, it is. I knew a night course in criminology wasn't going to go anywhere, of course, even if I'd finished it. I just had to do something to find a bit of interest in my life. And it was either that or become an alcoholic, so... Sorry, I'm going off topic. I initially found Graham a bit off-putting, to be honest. He was a chain smoker and wore far too much deodorant to try and cover the smell. He was a bit older than me, maybe ten years or so. I never asked his age, I mean, we weren't that close. But he was starting to grey at the edges of his hair, and you could see that the tiredness on his face wasn't just from missing a single night's sleep. That's not to say he was bad-looking, he had a round, open sort of face and quite deep blue eyes, but very much not my type. He was well-spoken in group work, at least when he did speak, and I think it came up once that he'd been to Oxford, though I don't know what college. I'd noticed earlier that uh, during lectures he always seemed to be scribbling furiously in a notebook, even when the lecturer wasn't speaking. At first I just thought he was thorough, but... I swear, I watched him fill a whole A5 notebook in one lecture. I remember it was a talk on youth and the justice system where the speaker was so slow that it wouldn't have filled that book even if Graham had been writing down literally every word. Not to mention, I asked to borrow his notes once for an essay, and he gave me this weird look and said he didn't take any notes. So yeah, point is, I wouldn't have called him a friend, but we got on alright. It was about four months into my course that I first encountered Graham outside of the university. I was riding the night bus home, having gone for a couple of drinks and missed the regular service. I live in Clapham, so there's a pretty regular night bus service headed there. Of course, regular also means drunken, angry vomitors, so yeah, I generally try to be unobtrusive, uh, sitting in a seat at the back of the top floor. It was there that I saw Graham. He was sat right at the front, staring out of the window. People watching is one of my guilty pleasures, so I decided not to say hello. At least, not right away. I wasn't disappointed either. He was stranger alone than he had ever been during class. It was the middle of winter at this point, so the windows were solid with condensation, but he almost obsessively wiped it away from the one in front of him the moment it started to obscure his view. He seemed to be intently scanning the street for something, except that at times he would crane his neck to stare at the roofs of the buildings passing by. He seemed nervous as well, and was breathing way faster than normal, which fogged up his window even more. It was slightly alarming to watch, to be honest, and I finally made up my mind to tell him I was there. He jumped a bit when I greeted him, and I asked him if he was alright. He told me he didn't usually stay out so late, and found nighttime public transport unsettling. I sat next to him, and he seemed to get much more relaxed, so I didn't push the issue. We talked for a while about nothing in particular until the bus started to approach my stop. As I rose, 
I noticed that Graham had stood up at the exact same time as I had, and I realised with some discomfort that we must live at the same stop. I liked the guy fine, don't get me wrong, but I still didn't really feel okay with him knowing where I lived. But yeah, it was obvious that I'd gotten up to get off the bus, so I couldn't really ride on to the next stop. And it wasn't even that I felt unsafe with Graham, I'm just a private person. I decided to just walk back with him as far as necessary and uh, make sure he didn't see what building I went into. Maybe we weren't even walking in the same direction. Yeah, we were walking in exactly the same direction. We even seemed to be heading to the same street. It was at that point I felt a hand grab my shoulder and throw me into the road. I don't know how else to describe it. One moment I was walking along, the next I was flying towards the ground. It can't have been Graham. He was in front of me at the time, and I would have sworn there was nobody else on the street. There weren't any cars coming, but I hit my head hard. I think I must have been unconscious for a few seconds, because the next thing I remember is a panicky Graham on the phone to an ambulance. I tried to tell him I was all right, but didn't really manage to get the words out, which, yeah, probably meant I wasn't all right. The ambulance arrived in pretty good time, considering it was London on a Friday night, and the paramedics gave me a look over. I was told that the injury itself wasn't serious, apparently head wounds always bleed that much, and it's nothing to panic about, but that I did have quite a nasty concussion and shouldn't be left alone for the next few hours. Even though we were within sight of my door, I had for some reason settled upon the idea of Graham never knowing where I lived. In retrospect, this was likely the concussion talking, but the upshot was I agreed to go back to Graham's flat to recover. He was quite awkward about the whole thing and took great pains to assure me that there was nothing untoward about the situation. Apparently he was gay, which I'll admit did actually reassure me a bit. Still, it was clear this wasn't how either of us had hoped to be ending our nights. As it turned out, Graham's flat was directly across the street from mine, just a couple of floors lower. I wondered if I could see my window from his, and I remember I had the odd thought that if I had to look out, I'd need to be careful of his window box, as I could see the hooks attaching it to the frame. I asked him what he grew, and he gave me a look as though my concussion had stopped me making sense again. I mean, maybe it had, because when I looked back at the window, the hooks were gone, and there was no sign of any window box. At the time, I put it down to my head wound, and even now I'm not sure. The flat itself was a simple affair, quite big by London standards. It had only a few pieces of furniture and a lot of bookshelves, each covered with rows and rows of identical notebooks, with no apparent marking system or indication of contents. I started to ask about them, but my head throbbed and I didn't feel up to any answer that might have been forthcoming. Graham led me to the sofa and disappeared to fetch me an ice pack and a mug of sugary tea. I graciously accepted both, though I wasn't in much of a mood to talk. Graham clearly felt awkward enough with the silence to do the talking for both of us, and I learned more about him over the next hour than I'd ever had a desire to know. Apparently his parents had died in a car accident a few years previously, and had left a great deal of money and ownership of this flat. He didn't need to work anymore, and so had found himself somewhat adrift, taking night college courses to pass the time and broaden his mind, his words, not mine. He said he was trying to figure out what to actually do with his life. He talked on like this for a while, but I stopped listening about that point, as I'd become enraptured by the table on which he'd placed my tea. It was an ornate wooden thing, with a snaking pattern of lines weaving their way around towards the centre. The pattern was hypnotic, and shifted as I watched it like an optical illusion. 
I found my eyes following the lines towards the middle of the table, where there was nothing but a small square hole. Graham noticed me staring and told me that interesting antique furniture was one of his few true passions. Apparently he'd found the table in a second-hand shop during his student days and fallen in love with it. It had been in pretty bad shape, but he'd spent a long time and a lot of money restoring it, though he'd never been able to figure out what was supposed to go in the centre. He assumed it was a separate piece and couldn't track it down. And yeah, like most of his conversation, I'd have found it dull even if I wasn't concussed, but by this time I was beginning to feel well enough to leave and started to make my excuses to Graham. He expressed his concern, said it hadn't been long enough as the medic suggested, but if I had to... well, you get the picture. In the end I did leave as I kept getting lost in the lines of the table, and the pipes outside of the window made such a weird noise that I didn't think staying was actually going to help me recover. I went straight home, making sure Graham couldn't see me from his window, and spent a few hours watching TV until I recovered enough to go to sleep. By the time I woke up the next morning I was feeling more or less okay, though I kept a plaster on the cut on my forehead and tried not to think too much about the previous night. One evening, a few days later though, I found myself staring out of my window, the one that faced the street, and I remembered how close Graham lived. I looked to see if I could figure out which window was his, and yeah, sure enough, there it was. It was actually a remarkably clear view of his flat, and I could see him sat on the sofa, reading one of the notebooks from his bookshelves. I realised that if I could see him so clearly, he could likely see me just as well if he chose to look up, and with some remnant of my apprehension from that Friday, I decided to turn off the light in my flat so he wouldn't see me if he looked up. And then I went back to watching him. Yeah, I know, that sounds creepy. It really wasn't meant to be. I said earlier that I really enjoy people watching, and regardless of how boring he may have been to speak to, Graham was weirdly compelling to watch. So that's just what I did. And not just that night, either. Yeah, there's no non-sinister way to say that watching Graham became my hobby. It was strange, I'll admit it, but I just couldn't stop myself. I reasoned it wasn't watching him with any purpose or malice in mind. It was purely out of a detached interest in his life. And in my defence, I would have stopped a lot sooner if it hadn't been for the bizarre things he would do. He would constantly reorder his journals, without any apparent system of organisation, most of the time without even opening them. Sometimes, he would grab an apparently random notebook from the shelves and start scribbling in it, even though I could see that the page was already covered in writing. Once, and I swear this is true, I saw him take one of his notebooks and start to tear out the pages one at a time. And then, slowly and deliberately, he ate them. It must have taken him three hours to get through the whole book, but he didn't stop or pause. He just kept going. Even when he wasn't doing anything with the notebooks, there was an odd energy to him. From what I could see, he was constantly on edge, and jumped every time any loud noise passed on the street below. A police siren, a breaking bottle... Hell, I even saw him freak out over an ice cream truck once. Each time he'd leap to his feet, run to the window and start looking out, wildly craning his neck from side to side. Sometimes he'd look up, but I'd learned his patterns well enough to avoid being spotted. Then, all at once, he'd decide that there was no problem and go back to whatever he was doing before. And by whatever he was doing before, yeah, I mean nothing. 
He apparently didn't have a television or a computer. The only books he seemed to own were his own notebooks. And I only ever saw him eat takeaway food. I don't know how many times I watched him eat the same pizza. Pepperoni with jalapeno peppers and anchovies. Yeah, I know. But the rest of the time he just sat there, smoking. Sometimes looking into space, sometimes staring at that wooden table of his. And yeah, I remembered the pattern was kind of hypnotic, and I spent more than a couple of minutes staring at it myself when I was there, but... He did almost nothing else. Who knows? Perhaps he had a rich and fulfilling life outside of the flat. He certainly left it regularly enough, and yeah, I wasn't so far gone as to actually follow him. In fact, I always waited a good long while before leaving my own building to make sure I didn't bump into him. I still didn't want him to know where I lived, although now for very different reasons. In the end, though, it was a hobby, not an obsession, and often days would pass when I wouldn't see Graham at all. Maybe there was stuff I missed that would have explained his behaviour. I just wish I'd missed what happened on April 7th. Then maybe I'd have just thought he'd moved on, or... I don't know. I just wish I hadn't seen it. Work had been intense for a couple of months, with so many late nights I'd had to drop out of my course. It was just as well, really, as I hadn't actually spoken to Graham since the night I suffered my head injury. I think he still felt awkward about it, and I'd seen him do so many weird things alone in his flat that I think I'd have struggled to have a normal conversation with him. Anyway, this week I'd barely had time to eat, let alone do much in the way of Graham watching, so when I got home at about half ten at night, my first thought was just to fall into bed. But it was Friday, and I'd drunk a huge amount of coffee to keep going at work, so... Yeah, I was wired, and looking forward to a long lie in the next day. So when I saw Graham's light was still on, I decided to spend a relaxing few minutes checking in on him. His light may have been on, but I couldn't see him, and I wondered if perhaps he'd gone to bed and simply forgotten to turn it off. More likely he was just in the bathroom, so I decided to wait a while longer. As I stared at that window, I realised there was something, I don't know, off about it. It looked different somehow, but I couldn't figure out what it was. Then I noticed it. At first, I'd just taken it to be a water pipe running down the side of the building, attached just below Graham's open window. The light from the street lamps didn't reach up to his fourth-floor flat, and the window ledge cast a shadow that stopped the light from the room illuminating it. But it was long, straight, dark, and from what I could see, it just looked like a pipe. Except... I'd been watching that window for months now. I would have sworn that there had never been a pipe there before. And as I stared at it, it moved. It started to bend slowly. And I realised I was looking at an arm. A long, thin arm. As it bent the joint close to where the arm ended, I think I saw another joint further down also moving and bending what I could only assume were elbows. It hooked the end of the limb over through the window. When I say moved, that's not quite right. It shifted. Like when you stare at one of those uh, old magic eye paintings and you change from seeing one picture into seeing another. I never saw anything I could actually call a hand, but still it pulled itself through his window. It took less than a second, and I, I didn't get a good look at what it was. I just saw these arms, legs, at least four of them, but there might have been more. And they kind of 
unfolded themselves through the window in a flash of mottled grey. I think that was the colour. It was mostly a silhouette. If there was a body or head, it shifted inside faster than I could see it. The moment it was inside, the light in Graham's flat went out, and the window slammed down behind it. So, yeah, I just kind of stood there for a long time trying to process what I'd just seen. I could make out some vague movements from inside Graham's flat, but couldn't see anything clearly. I finally decided I had to phone the police, though I didn't have any idea what to tell them. In the end, I simply said I'd seen someone suspicious climbing in through a fourth-floor window at his address and hung up before they could ask me who was calling. Then I waited and watched the darkened flat opposite. I couldn't look away. I was convinced that if I stopped staring that whatever the hell it was would fold itself back out, reach over and step into my home. Nothing came out. About ten minutes later I saw a police car driving up the street. No sirens, no flashing lights, but they were here and right away I started to feel better. Looking up though, I saw the light had come on in Graham's flat. There was no sign of the thing I'd seen climb in, but as the police pressed the buzzer outside his building, I saw someone walking towards the door to let them in. It wasn't Graham. I can't stress enough how much this was not Graham. He looked completely different. He was maybe a few inches shorter and had a long, square face topped with curly blonde hair where Graham's had been dark and cut short. He was dressed in Graham's clothes, though. I recognised the shirt from my months of watching, but he was not Graham. I watched as not Graham walked to the door and let the two police officers in. They talked for a while, and not Graham looked concerned, and together they started to search the flat. I watched, waiting for the thing to emerge or, or for them to find the real Graham, but they didn't. At one point, I saw one of the police pick up a dark red shape that I recognised as a passport. My heart beat faster as I saw her open it and look at Not Graham, clearly comparing, waiting for the moment when she detected the imposter. But instead she just laughed, shook Not Graham's hand and they left. I watched the police car drive away, feeling a sense of helplessness. And when I looked up, he was standing at Graham's window, looking back at me. I stood there frozen as his wide, staring eyes met mine, and a cold, toothy smile spread across his face. Then in one swift motion he drew the curtains and was gone. I didn't sleep that night, and I never saw Graham again. I saw this new person, though, all the time. For the next week I'd see him taking out large, heavy-looking rubbish bags several times a day. It took me a while to realise he was disposing of Graham's old notebooks. But soon enough the flat was empty of them. I think he did other redecorating, but I never got a good look, as the only time he had his curtains open was when he was staring intently at my flat, which he now did every night. I tried to find evidence of the old Graham, but anything I could find online with a picture, it was always a picture of this new person. I even asked some of my old classmates, but None of them seemed to remember him at all. Eventually I moved. I really liked my old place in Clapham, but yeah, it just got too much. The last straw was when I was leaving for work one morning, and didn't realise until too late that not Graham had left his building at the same time. 
He greeted me by name. His voice was nothing like it should have been. I started to make my excuses and hurry away, but he just stared at me and smiled. Isn't it funny, Amy, how you can live so near and never notice? I'll need to return the visit some day. I moved out a week later, and I never saw him again. Statement ends. I'd be tempted to dismiss this as hallucination resulting from long-term head trauma complications, but Tim came through with this one and managed to get hold of Ms. Patel's medical records. God knows how he got them, but he better not be using institute funds to woo filing clerks again. The records just don't support the idea she was suffering those sort of problems. Not to mention I usually trust co-worker testimony as far as I can burn it, but her job really doesn't seem like the sort you could do with a compromised sense of reality. Ms. Patel has refused our request for a follow-up interview and seems to be trying to distance herself from these events. Graham Folger definitely existed and appears to match up with her story. According to coroner's records, Desmond and Samantha Folger, his parents, died on the M1 near Sheffield on August 4, 2001, and Graham Folger's name appears on the register of several colleges and universities in and around London over the next few years. The flat she mentioned did belong to Mr. Folger, but was sold through an agency in early 2007. All the photographs we've been able to source seem to match the description of this not-Graham that Ms. Patel described, except for a few Polaroids enclosed, which appear to be from the late 80s and show the two parents along a dark-haired teenager. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. A witch doctor in Angola, Africa, who wants to resign his profession, must attain an entirely new identity by wearing a mask day and night for a whole year. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you the weird story of a man who staged his own execution. Some men have been known to do strange things in the face of death, and Giuseppe Caracci certainly was one of them. Giuseppe was an Italian sculptor who was sentenced to death in Paris for attempting to murder Napoleon. He persuaded authorities to permit him to travel to the guillotine in the purple robes of a Roman emperor, and he rode in a golden coach which he designed especially for his own execution. Believe it or not. <laughs> And we are back. Sorry about that. We will have the 
full version of the Magnus Archives in the podcast. Uh, for some reason, things weren't working on the sound cart program I use. Um, and so, um, yeah, when I tried to stop the playback, it uh, stopped me. So there we go. Uh, sorry about that. Uh, I've also made an executive decision. We will have the um, the Weird Circle adaptation of Rappuccini's Daughter added as part of the podcast. Um, that way we're not taking up too much airtime. Uh, we may do that as a regular basis. So if you want to hear the Weird Circle, Rappuccini's Daughter, please download the podcast. Anyway, we are coming to the bottom of the show top of the hour bound show very ironic uh and so it's time for pod people and uh again for those of you who haven't listened before pod people is where i talk about a podcast i enjoy um so far we've done the old gods of appalachia as well as uh a voice from darkness and this week we're doing another good one at least i think it's good and this is the scp archives podcast um, courtesy of the Bloody Disgusting uh, Network, Podcast Network. And so we're going <coughs> to, excuse me, we are going to get to the uh, trailer for um, uh, the SCP archives. And there was a swear word in here. I'm pretty sure I caught it. If this is the right version, if I missed it, I apologize. I, caught, I I picked it up when I listened to this, and I thought I edited it out. So hopefully I was right, uh, because this is a a, a safe for work podcast. Um, I'm I'm following Kenny Pick's trend. Uh, no swearing, other than like damn hell, stuff like that. Um, basically, if you might hear it in a a an old time radio show, it's fair game. For me so anyway here is the two and a half minute trailer of the scp archives podcast warning the foundation database is classified unauthorized access will result in detainment within this archive you'll find the procedures descriptions and accounts of the most notorious anomalies we've encountered to date Secure. Contain. Protect. Item number. SCP's... Object class. Special containment procedures. Subjects report and audio recordings confirm the distress vocalization from what is presumed to be a child between the ages of... and... Please continue to descend. Ew, there's something on the ground here and it smells really bad. It's all sticky and stuck on my shoe. Ugh, it's so gross. And the light of an indeterminate distance down the hole flicks on for approximately two seconds and then back off. Doc, you hear that? Is that a kid down there? That's unconfirmed. Please affix one of the adhesive lights to the wall and verify it functions. It's dark. Is your flood lamp functioning properly? Ports of knocking have ceased. Do you 
have spent a long time in a dark, unknown stairwell. It's natural. Please continue. After 14 minutes and 32 seconds of unchanging visual and audio feeds, the sound of a rapid heartbeat not consistent with a human heartbeat, and a low crackling noise is heard. Seven seconds later, D-9035 gasps and revives. Please continue down the next flight. Reason for stopping? Look, Doc, I, I think I've gone far enough, okay? Thank you. Please continue down. Uh, please continue to descend. Please continue down the next Please continue as per our agreement. Look, I don't want to be doing this agreement or not. Stay tuned. The SCP Archives will premiere on March 19th. You can stay up to date by finding us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Instagram. And remember, secure, contain, protect. So, that, yeah, uh, that was the SCP Archives uh, trailer. Uh, again, in glorious mono. But, uh, yeah, it's a fun little podcast. Basically, uh, they they take these uh, things uh, that are, you know, written collaboratively called uh, SCPs or Secure Contained Protects. They're anonymous objects, peoples, beings, etc. And uh, people write stories about them set in this universe, this shared universe. And um, basically, this podcast takes those and adapts them in, with, with a great cast, in my opinion. Anyway, here is uh, a two-minute piece. Again, excuse me. I'm just being very naughty, mate. From the episode uh, SCP-2317, A Door to Another World. And I picked this episode because this is, first of all, the one that got me into the show. And this is one that also got me in the SCP uh, universe. So this is kind of of a special one to me. Anyway, here we go. SCP-2317 is a wooden door and frame originally constructed as a basement door for a 19th century Massachusetts brownstone. Upon opening the door, any person stepping through the door frame will be transported to an alternate reality. Exploration of the alternate reality, SCP-2317-Prime, is limited, but the area directly accessible through SCP-2317 is a salt pan several kilometers in radius. A circle of seven pillars, SCP-2317-A through SCP-2317-G, are positioned in a 10-meter diameter circle approximately 10 meters directly in front of SCP-2317. Each pillar is approximately 1 meter in diameter and 7 meters tall, constructed of marble and engraved with a series of intricate base reliefs. The art style of the engravings do not correspond to that of any known modern, historic, or prehistoric civilization. SCP-2317-A through G extend 200 meters below the surface of the sand and into SCP-2317-H. SCP-2317-H is a spherical space 100 kilometers in diameter located directly underneath SCP-2317-A through G, lined with the same stone used to construct SCP-2317-A through G. Contained within SCP-2317-H is SCP-2317-K hereafter referred to as Entity. 
The following information has been inferred through seismic analysis and ground-penetrating radar, as well as direct observation. Entity appears to be an obese human-like creature of immense proportions. Estimated height if fully erect is over 200 kilometers. Horns resembling tree branches sprout from its head, which lacks a lower jaw. Entire body is covered in millions of overlapping plate-like scales. Seven heavy hooks are embedded in the entity's back, each one attached to a heavy steel chain connected to the lower end of one of seven pillars embedded in the ceiling of the chamber. At the time of the writing of this document, six of the seven pillars or chains have been broken or damaged, and only one chain remains intact. So there you have it, yeah, door to another world. Something weird is in there, something probably dangerous. Uh, my only real issue with this is I think they could use a bit more hands-on when it comes to direction. For example, in that clip you heard him, you heard uh, the narrator, John Grills, refer to base reliefs when it should have been bas reliefs. That's just a minor gripe, but I think that shows kind of a weakness, uh, uh, you know, on the part of direction. Like a director should say, no, it's it's bas relief. That's, you know, come on. This is an art, you know, like I'm not even an art student and I know that. But uh, yeah, so again, I enjoy it. You can find, we'll have links to this in our show notes. Um, they do have a Patreon, and, but the majority of their material unlike a voice from darkness is free well no i think a good chunk of a voice from darkness is um material is free but um it, it's a fun podcast they've got about, i believe three seasons in um they're doing their third season right now and i can tell you what i'm really waiting for is for them to do the red sea object that's a good SCP. Very creepy. Very bizarre. But, uh, yeah. So, real quick, just a reminder of the program you can expect to hear here on Radio for Humans. Of course, tomorrow night we have time for Go to Bed with Kenny Pick and the Sues. You will hear them continue to run uh, Dorothy and the Wizard in Oz. Um as well as Jerry of the Circus. I believe Wormwood Forest isn't finished yet. And, um, the Magic Island, right? Or is it the Miscla Magic Island, I think. Um, lots of fun. And, of course, I'm sure they'll talk about their, their eBay stuff, shenanigans as well. Of course, Friday night, uh, it came from Cleveland, where you will hear a brand new mythical moment courtesy of yours truly. And uh, this this one is gonna be. I'm not even gonna play coy. Um, I, we're gonna. I'm gonna be starting a two-parter, talking about the story of Susano from Shinto mythology because this is the very first story I told when I was doing um, what was basically the beta version of Mythical Moment. Um, what was it called? Myth information. Myth information. On Mike Check Radio. This was the first story I told. This is this is a very this is one of my favorite myths. I love sharing it. I love telling it, and it's going to be a two-parter. So there you go. Uh, Saturday night at eight p.m. Of course, it came from Cleveland, and time for go to bed. Both at seven o'clock p.m. Eastern, Thursday and Friday night. Uh, Paul's Mary Bank Saturday night at uh, ba -ba -ba <laughs> eight. 
Eastern. And of course, if I don't say Eastern, please remember all times are Eastern. So if you live out, you know, west of of the Eastern time zone, you need to make sure to subtract however many hours you have to. Um, of course, Tim Coramal, uh, Mondays at eight, Mondays and Wednesday at eight thirty. Um, and Tuesdays at, I believe, 8 p.m. I should probably start having notes for this so I don't just ramble aimlessly. Uh, let's see here. Tuesday. Tim Cornwall is at 8 p.m. Eastern. And then uh, that's it. Oh, and of course, don't forget... Um, Second Chance Sundays, where we'll be running repeats of all the original Radio for Human programs from that week, starting at noon, beginning with It Came from Cleveland from Friday. Again, we might shuffle things around a bit, but I definitely don't want to have it end with Dread Time Stories, because that would just be too depressing to go to bed on. So it, definitely the end will be time for Go to Bed. That You know, that's kind of how I... I envision things so anyway second chance sunday starts at noon this sunday and uh yeah so just a reminder there will be more content on the podcast for today's tonight's show um that will include the strange dr weird and um the selected old time radio episode that we didn't get to because of time so, and that'll probably be something we do. Also, I will be, once season one has concluded, I will begin looking at possibly setting up a Patreon um, or some sort of tip jar if you enjoy supporting, if you enjoy the programming you're listening to now or just Radio for Humans, uh, I, you know, please consider it, to, you know, putting it something in the tip jar, um, something like that. Like I said, I don't want to go, be, I'm not going behind a paywall. I'm not getting sponsors because I got a sponsor. His name is Kenny Pick. And he is an amazing sponsor. He he is an amazing benefactor. So that's it for us tonight. Thank you again very much for listening. All 13 people. Lucky number 13. Unlucky 13. Or as well as uh, Mr. Humphreys would say in uh, Are You Being Served. Unlucky for some. Obviously for me. 13 is not unlucky because this exceeds pretty much almost anything I ever had in my check radio. So, we're going to wrap up the program. Everyone have a great week. Next week's show. Oh, this is going to be a good one. I'm looking forward to this one. We are going to go to one of the most famous um, authors of Japanese work. And the funny thing is, he wasn't Japanese. We're going to be talking about Lafcadio Hearn. And he, he seemed to love Japanese ghost stories. And we're going to be running one of my personal favorites, Earless Hoichi, right here on this very show next week. Um, the only problem is I'm having trouble finding a good old-time radio show episode to pair with that. But we will have all of our regular fixings. Um, you know, of course, the reading, radio show, Magnus Archives, Strange Dr. Weird. Ripley's Bumps, and of course, Pod People. Gotta pick my Pod People. 
Anyway, everyone, thank you very much for listening. Have a great week, and don't forget to listen to the other fine programs here on Radio for Humans. Until next week, unpleasant dreams. Oh, and I forgot to say, music on this program, the 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 uh, music I use to play us in between um, segments is courtesy of Tabletop audio.com uh, music for your podcasts or um, Dungeons and Dragons games so check them out because it is good stuff and it's free <laughs> you can't beat free alright everyone have a great week again thank you for listening and we'll be back next week on Dread Time Stories again. Until next time. Unpleasant dreams. Hello again, dear listeners. Uh, this is Adam Hebert again, host of Dread Time Stories. And uh, this is the part of the podcast where we are going to run the things 
that we didn't get to run as part of the live show because of time restraints. Um, if this is well received, and believe me, I do check the numbers on the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, if this is well received, if it looks like people are listening, then you can look forward to this as a regular thing whenever I can't air stuff for uh, due to time constraints. Um, again, I'm trying to stick to the format developed by Kenny Peck and Susan. It's a good format, and after a talk, we both agree that this sort of format just, you know, I mean... Pushing it more than two hours is not good. So, um, I mean, I get it. Some people might be willing to listen. And that's why we're providing this part of the podcast as part of the podcast. So, uh, what are you going to hear on this? You are going to hear, again, the unused bumps from um, tonight's show. Followed by, um, or no, well, the bumps, the old time radio. And then that's going to be it. So you're looking at about an extra hour's worth of content for free. That's why I call Bargoon. And this will, um, I wish I could say this will be part of the, um, the Second Chance Sunday's repeat. But unfortunately, I just don't think it will be. Um, just because, again, Second Chance Sunday's version is... Uh, under the same time constraints because it's it's supposed to be the air version so again nothing personal that said thank you for listening if you are and uh let's get on with the show first up we're going to have the strange dr weird um which because i knew we weren't going to be doing it i didn't prepare it so i'm gonna have to prepare it uh, but that won't be too long. Um, but uh, the Strange Doctor Weird episode two, which is the summoning of Chandor, and that's another thing. Just so you know, just a heads up. Um, I also found out about Chandor the Magician. We will be running that eventually. Um, once we're out of the Strange Doctor Weird, which will be in, in about 30 episodes. Well, 29. there's 29 episodes. But uh, then we'll run on to Chan, Chandor the Magician, which um, not necessarily as much of a horror uh, show, but fits in with the theme of this program. So again, just a reminder, um, next week we'll be doing Lafcadio Hearn's um, Earless Hoichi. Mimi, Na, uh, Mimi Nashi Koichi, and uh, the rest, uh, of course, episode four, the Magnus Archives, and eleven our pod people segment. So there you go. All right, we're gonna get on with the after show right after this. Truth is stranger than fiction, and this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. <laughs> Thomas Thompson of Wolfley, Scotland, a professional chaser of ghosts, stepped out of a house from which he claimed to have driven a ghost and was struck dead by a bolt of lightning. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you the story of a man's loyalty and a king's reward. Sir Edmund Wyndham was convicted of disrespect to the king as a result of striking a foe in the presence of King Henry VIII. Sir Edmund was sentenced to have his right arm chopped off. 
When the sentence was to be carried out, Sir Edmund requested that his left arm be cut off so that he could continue to use his right arm, his sword arm, in the defense of his king. As a result of his unselfish request, Sir Edmund was granted a pardon. Believe it or not. Phantoms of a world gone by speak again the immortal tale, Rappaccini's Daughter. Good evening, Signora. Good evening, Signor. I have come from the southern part of Italy to study at the University of Padua. I was passing your house and thought you might have a room to let. Oh, no, no, I'm sorry. My rooms are all rented. Oh, but what shall I do? I was sure you would help me. Oh, when I first saw the crest there above the door... The crest? Why, do you know it? It's the armorial bearing of my family, and this was my great-grandfather's house, Signora. I've often heard my grandmother speak of it. Oh, then your name must be Guasconti. Giovanni Guasconti, signora. I should oh. be grateful for your help. Well, I really do not have a room to rent, signor. There are so many students in Padua, but... Uh, yes? I was just thinking of the room on the east side of the house. Long ago, I closed it up, but perhaps for one night... Oh, it's uh, very kind of you. Come along, I'll show it to you. Follow me up the stairs. Do you not rent it, Signora, because it is so small, perhaps? Oh, no, no. The room is quite large. But it's the only one in the house that has an eastern exposure. But who could object to the morning sun? Oh, it isn't the sun, Signor. Then what? You will see for yourself in a moment. There. What? Why, it's a beautiful room, Signora. And how sweet the air is. You keep flowers here. There's a garden outside below the window. Here, I'll show you. Oh. Peep through the shutters. The moon's quite bright tonight. Oh, that's a beautiful place. Thousands of flowers. And the wall around it is high. This is a strange thing, Signora. It is indeed, it is. No, no, not the garden. You know, you know how sometimes you experience something that seems to have happened before? Hmm, little things you do or see. I have stood here before and looked out at such a garden. But before, a beautiful girl was on that path tending the flower. Look, there she is. Signor, come away. It is she, the doctor's daughter. Ah, how beautiful she is. Just as I remembered. It is not good to look upon her. Oh, look, she's seen us. And there's a man. A tall, gaunt-looking man standing in the shadows. It's he, the doctor. I'm afraid... There's something about both Dr. Rappaccini and his daughter I don't understand. Something evil. Oh, but, Signora. The way he looked at you. Oh, I could not let you stay here. Oh, of course you will. There's nothing to fear. Oh, but the sweet smell of the flowers is so strong. It makes one grow faint. Who is he, this Dr. Rappaccini? No one in Padua knows anything about him, except that he lives alone with his daughter who tends the garden for him. It is said that he distills the plants into medicines potent as a charm. Now, come. You will let me stay, Signora, if only for the night. Say you will. But, Signor... Would you send me away when I have no place to go? I should never have suggested this rule. I promise you no harm will come of it. There. Now, let me see you smile again. 
and say I may stay the night. <laughs> but tomorrow you must find another place. <laughs> promise me that, too. I promise. Then I'll fetch your sheets. I'll be back in a moment. Signorino Rappaccini. Who is it that calls? Up here in the window. What is it, Signor? Your flowers sparkle like gems in the moonlight. It is the most beautiful garden I've ever seen. Thank you, Signor. Perhaps someday you'll honor me with a gift of one of the blossoms. My father prizes them highly. But perhaps he would consent to the gift of one someday. Good night to you, Signor. Good night, beautiful lady. So, my young pupil has become acquainted with the daughter of Rappaccini. This is startling news. But, Signor Baglioni, why do you frown so? You were as bad as Dame Lisabetta, my landlady. I've lived in her house for a week now, and every day she threatens to send me away. This garden, Giovanni, what is it like? Ah, almost as beautiful as Beatrice herself, Professor. The plants are lush, and the blossoms very, very large. Some of them have all the colors of the rainbow, but there is one, the most beautiful of all, that grows in a huge urn in the center of an ancient fountain. Its leaves are bright green and very large, and its flowers purple and red. In the sunlight, they sparkle. And at nighttime, they catch the rays of the moon and glimmer like diamonds covered with dew. Giovanni, you are the son of my old friend, and I must tell you this. Move away from the garden this very night. But, but why? Why is everybody so frightened of Dr. Rappaccini? In Padua, Giovanni, there are certain grave objections to his professional character. What are they? It is said that he cares infinitely more for science than for mankind that his patients are only subjects for new experiments. He would sacrifice human life for even a mustard seed of knowledge. Oh, there aren't many men capable of so spiritual a love of science. Heaven forbid. And they also say that he has instructed his daughter deeply in a science. So you see, she is as dangerous as he. Oh, it is only malicious gossip, believe me, senor. Almost every night I've spoken with Beatrice from my window. And she's as charmingly feminine as she is beautiful. Ah, youth is as heedless as the arrow of love itself. Giovanni, you are not leaving. I must, Professor Baglioni. Thank you for the dinner and the wine. But the evening's just begun. You see, every night she comes to the garden now. And I wouldn't miss seeing her, Professor. Not for all the flowers in the whole wide world. Goodbye. Thanks again. But I have not told you what... Oh, students, they will never listen. And he jeopardizes his very life. You've come at last. Why, Elizabeth, what's the oh. matter? What's happened? He came here, here to this house. What? Oh, I tell you, I've been fair shaking with fright, thinking of it. But who? The knocker sounded late this afternoon, it was. Mm -hmm. And I went to the door, not even faintly suspecting, and the saints preserve a senor, there he stood. Elizabeth, calm yourself. Now, what is this? He came here to ask for you, Dr. Rappaccini himself. What? Oh, now, Lizabetta, don't tell me you let the old doctor frighten you. Tell me what he said. Fifteen years I've lived in this house, all of fifteen, and I never noticed it was there. Never even suspected it was there. Signor, I must have my room. You cannot stay here another minute. I will not allow it. All right, Lizabetta, but what is it you never suspected? The door, Signor. The secret door to the garden. Wh where? At the back of the large closet under the stairs. But what did the doctor say, Lizabetta? Oh, he... He said, oh, but, senor, you won't do it. Promise you won't do it. The whole thing frightens me half to death. What did he say? He, he asked me to give you his invitation to visit the garden tonight. Tonight? Ah, it's what I've been waiting for, Elisabetta. Come, come, show me the door. No, 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 come back, senor. You must not go is, there. Is this the closet? Yes, senor, but... Now, 
Where is the secret door, Elizabeth? Oh, I shall never forgive myself for this. There, in the far wall. Don't you see? But, oh, yes, of course. Thanks, Elizabeth. Oh, the saints preserve you from harm. Good evening, senor. You did come. My father said you would. I've been wanting to since that first night when I spoke to you from the window there. Please, then, sit here on the marble bench. Indeed, your garden is magical in the light of the moon. How brightly the flowers shine. Do you tend them all? All that you see, except the most wonderful one of all. It grows yonder in the center of the fountain. I have admired it greatly. Is that one, then, your father's special prize? It is the most magical of all, senor. And he watches over it himself. How sweet the air is. I can smell the fragrance of your flowers, you know, in my room. Can you? They are such wonderful flowers, senor. Their fragrance is as intoxicating as wine. I have breathed deeply of this wine, signorina Beatrice, because it is yours. Knowing you were here has made me a happy man. And I have felt it, too. As if from that first night you spoke, I knew you from somewhere long ago. It was in a dream once. Did you know it would become real someday? No, I could not hope for it. I, too, once saw you high in the window there, looking down and saying what you said to me. Later, in a vision in my mind, you came to the garden, even as tonight. Beatrice, you must know I love you with all my heart. And I, since first we met in the stillness of my dream. Giovanni here, a flower from my garden, a token of my love. Beatrice! What? I am here, Father, with Signor Guasconti. Let me ask your hand, Beatrice, tonight... Let us be married soon. If you wish, Giovanni. Look, here he comes. Good evening, senor. Good evening, sir. We have never met, but I believe we are acquainted. Often I have seen you here in the garden. Thank you for inviting me this evening. My daughter expressed an especial wish to see you, and I was not adverse to it. Then, Dr. Rappuccini, perhaps it's best now to say that I am in love with Beatrice. With her consent and yours, we will be married. Married? What does my daughter say? I will gladly consent. Oh, but both of you, so young, and your acquaintanceship is brief. Senor, that flower, you hold it in your hand. I gave the blossom to him, Father. Does its fragrance not stun you, Senor, and the feel of it burn your fingers? No, but why do you ask? Only because it is one of my most potent blossoms. I see you are more ready for the betrothal than I thought. You have my consent. Later, I'll talk further to you both. Now, good night. But, senor, I must make one request. <laughs> I am too happy to refuse you anything. You'll think it strange, perhaps. When you leave the garden, return the flower to my daughter. It is too precious a blossom to part with. Good night again. Professor Baglioni, what a surprise finding you here in my room. I came directly. You left me at the restaurant, Giovanni. Dame Elisabetta told me you were in the garden. Yes, and Professor, the most wonderful thing... Giovanni, wait. I know what it is. But it cannot be, I tell you. Listen, let me tell you a story. Hundreds of years ago, Alexander the Great fell in love with a beautiful Indian girl. She was as lovely as the dawn, and her breath was richer than a garden of Persian roses. Before they were married, a sage physician luckily discovered a terrible secret in regard to her. And what was that? This lovely woman had been nourished with poisons from her birth until her whole nature was so imbued with them that she herself had become the deadliest poison in existence. 
poison was her element of life. With the rich perfume of her breath, she blasted the very air. Her love would have been poison. Her embrace, death. But why do you tell this to me now? It is my way of saying that this Beatrice Rappaccini endangers your life. Professor, you can't believe... I do believe it. I know. Even now your room is filled with a strong, poisonous perfume. But that is the garden. I noticed it too at first, but one grows accustomed to it. Giovanni, my poor boy, don't you see? Dr. Rappaccini has selected you as the material for some new experiment, just as he has used his daughter. Even now your very breath is heavy with the fragrance of that terrible place. No, you're wrong. Look, I have brought with me a bouquet of yellow rosebuds. They are there on the table. Giovanni... Pick them up. No, no, I won't touch Giovanni, them. Giovanni, do, as I say, take them in your hand. But all this is mad. What would a few rosebuds... <gasps> Look at them. See, your very touch withers the leaves and turns the yellow petals brown. Giovanni, you are imbued with the poison of the garden, even as she. I beg of you, leave here this very night now. Go before it is too late. No, no, I can't, I can't. Oh, Professor, help me, I beg you. No, no, go back. Do not come near me. Stay back. Your very touch is poison. You must go away from all this quickly, quickly, Giovanni. I can't, I can't. I love her too much. I could not live without her. I could not live without her. Giovanni, you are imbued with the poison of the garden, even as she. I beg of you, leave her this very night. Now, go, go before it is too late. No, no, I can't, I can't. Oh, Professor, help me, I beg you. No, 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 go back. Do not come near me. Stay back. Your very touch is poison. You must go away from all this quickly, quickly, Giovanni. I can't, I can't. I love her too much. I could not live without her. I could not live without her. Then, then you shall surely die. Already the fumes of the flowers have impregnated you with that poison. And that devil Rappaccini is making ready even now to use you to carry on his atrocious experiment. You're lying. I don't believe you. Oh, my poor boy. What reason would I have for lying? I am trying to help you. She doesn't know. I'm sure of it. Doesn't know what? About the poison that she's permeated of with it. Of course she knows. Isn't Beatrice Rappaccini almost as renowned a scientist as her father? I tell you, Giovanni, you must not see her again. Ever. You must leave this place. My carriage is outside. We can drive to my villa by midnight. Come, come now before it is too late. How could Beatrice have done this to me? Professor Baglioni, I couldn't go without knowing, without some word from her. You would see her again. Oh, my boy, no, no, no. Well, I must, don't you see? I've got to know. Listen, help me, Professor. There's a moth on the window curtain. Capture it in this glass tumbler and cover it with a napkin. But why? What can a moth... I want to prove what you've told me. I could never be content without knowing the truth. Here, take the tumbler. Don't let the moth escape. Well, I do not understand... Giovanni, this is mad. There, there, there it is. Cover the glass with a napkin. All right. There, it is done. Now, where is your carriage? It is just outside on the street. Will you wait there for me? Yes, if you wish. But I still don't understand. And wake Dame Elisabetta. Ask her to wait in the carriage with you. What are you planning to do? To find out the truth. Giovanni, you are going to the garden? Yes, Professor. I'm going to the garden. Giovanni... It's you. Beatrice, my darling. Come out in the light of the moon. There's something I must tell you. I was frightened for a moment seeing your dark shadow against my window. 
Has something happened, Giovanni? Come out in the garden with me, and I'll tell you. Is your father awake? I don't know. I don't think he is. Stand with me here, where the moonlight's brightest. Beatrice, I want you to know that I love you more than my life. I want you to believe me. I do, Giovanni. But what is that you carry in your hand? Only a tumbler. Inside is a moth. See how he flutters his wings inside the glass. Beatrice, hold out your hand. Why, Giovanni? I want you to take the moth in your fingers and watch it closely. Here, don't let it fly away. <laughs> no, I shan't. Oh, how he struggles. Is he a very special moth of some rare species? Giovanni, look. What's the matter with him? I... I believe he's dead. Yes. He is dead. What a shame. He was a prisoner too long. No, that isn't the reason, Beatrice. Oh, my darling, you've been ignorant of the poison. I knew you were. Poison? What do you mean? Do you love me enough, Beatrice, to trust me completely? Do you? Say you do. I do, Giovanni, of course. Then there's no time to lose. I want you to go away with me now, tonight. Go away? Why? Because this garden is a tomb filled with the perfume of death. Beatrice, these flowers are deadly. They're filled with the most potent poison in the world. Even now, your veins run with noxious blood. Your very touch is death to any living thing. Giovanni, what are you saying? I speak the truth, Beatrice. And heaven help us both. For now, my body, too, has gained your power. And I am nourished by the poison of your garden. You mean... Oh. It is my father's fatal science. He has united us in this fearful sympathy. Beatrice! Giovanni, he's seen us here. Don't be afraid, my darling. The hour grows close to midnight. And tomorrow there is much to do. Oh, you are not alone, I see. Father, there's something you must know. Giovanni has come to take me away. What? Well, you are jesting. We will talk tomorrow of your marriage. Beatrice, you will not be here tomorrow, Dr. Rappaccini. Well, what is this, some madness of the moonlight? Giovanni has told me of the garden, and it's poison. And he has also poisoned your mind against me. No, no, it is not that. Then what is there to fear? The flowers will not harm either of you now. My science makes you both stand apart from common men. But why? Why did you inflict this thing upon your child? Inflict? Can you use such a word when you can quell the mightiest enemy with a breath, a power as terrible as you are beautiful? Beatrice, come quickly now. No, you cannot take her away. Beatrice, come back. Giovanni, where are we going? A carriage is waiting on the street outside. You young fools, you don't know what you are doing. Come back. Come back! Here is the stairway to the secret door. We won't be sorry, Giovanni, will we? Tell me we won't be sorry. Of course we won't, my darling. Come, they're waiting for us. Giovanni, what madness to bring that girl with you like this. I would never have come without a professor. Dame Elizabeth, let me have your shawl for Beatrice. The air is cold. The poor child, what she must have suffered. Here, please. Don't touch Elizabeth. No good will come of this. I know it. Here, Beatrice, around your shoulders. Where are we going? To my villa, just outside Padua. You understand, my child, it is not that I mean to be unkind, but this thing is beyond our understanding. You need not fear, senor. We will not come near you. How beautiful she is, and to think her own father... It will be different now, we can see. Before many days have passed, the poison will ever weigh, and we'll be like anybody else, freed from that terrible place. The air is so different here, so stale. It's God's own air, Beatrice. It's our life. Breathe it deeply. Giovanni, I'm afraid. Oh, my darling, these are our friends. But the air, it, it's so hard to breathe the air. Giovanni, hold me. 
Hold me close. I'm afraid. I'm afraid. Professor Baglioni, how is she? I don't know. Elisabetta is at her bedside. This, this frightens me, Giovanni. But it's been five hours since we arrived. I can't bear for her to suffer. Giovanni, look at me. Oh, how pale you are, how quick your breath is. I'm all right. You're not all right. Come, my friend, rest a little. No, 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 I, I've got something to do for her. That's the air, the unpoisoned air. It suffocates her. There's nothing we can do, nothing. There must be something. I'm, I'm going into her. Dame Elisabetta, how is she? Oh, Signor, she is not well. If I could only comfort her a little. Beatrice, forgive me for taking you away. I, I wanted to come, Giovanni. I want to be with you. Oh, my darling, if I had known. You too can feel it. I see the terror in your eyes. It's the garden, Giovanni. We miss the garden. I know we do. But I never want to go back, never again. I'd rather die than go back to the garden. Signor, do you think... Oh, that's it, that's it. What, Elizabeth? The garden. It's her very life. There she can live. No, no, I won't go back. Don't you see? There in the garden is the drugged air that keeps her alive. I know it is. I know. I can feel the need of it, too. My lungs burn with the need of it. Then go back, go back before it's too late. You will die here, don't you see? Both of you. Elizabeth is right, Beatrice. And there's something else. Why did I never think of it before? Come, I'll take you in my arms to the carriage. There's no help for it. We must go back to the garden. Dr. Rappaccini! Dr. Rappaccini! We've come back. Beatrice! Senor... You have killed her. No. No, she is not dead. Lay her here beside the fountain. Uh, oh, my child, what has he done to you? Uh, we are both addicted to your poison, Doctor. We we cannot live without it. Quick, break off a flower. Drop some of the dew upon her lips. Yeah, yeah. Beatrice, my darling, taste of the flower's dew. Here. Drink some of it yourself, Senor. It is magic. It will give you strength. Giovanni, you have brought me back again. I could not see you die, my Beatrice. Here, taste of the dew again. Well, look, she breathes easily. The color returns to her cheeks. The air is sweet in my lungs. Giovanni, forgive me for loving you. Now we must both stay here in the garden forever. Lie still, my darling. Now you know the power of my science. You see how foolish it is to cross me. I am not convinced, Dr. Rappaccini. You are a devil. And I mean to find out the secret of your immunity. What are you saying? I know now why it is you never touch these plants. You do have a secret of immunity from the vile curse which the perfume of this garden inflicts upon those who breathe it too long. I will not listen to this. You would sacrifice your daughter to tend these poisonous things because if you were to remain here too long, you would become infected too, just as we have. Senor, you will leave this garden. I will not leave before I know. And you will tell me, Dr. Rappaccini, what your secret is. I will know the secret. I will know the antidote. Get away from me. Your breath is sudden death. Yes, it is, and so is my touch. While you are still uncontaminated by the perfume, your life is at the mercy of those whom it has infected. Is it not? Your temporary immunity has become your curse, has it not, Doctor? Stop! Let go! Let go! Mother and Doctor in the poison of your own contriving. Let me go! Let me go! Giovanni, you're killing him! Father! Father! I, too, have touched him. Stand back there, Trichy. Look. He's dying. What have we done? What have we done? My children, forgive me. I am an old man. And my science to me was more precious than the miracle of life. 
I sought for the most powerful of drugs, and only now I have found it. What is stronger than the love in a man's heart? My father, what can we do? You can live your lives, my child, and walk as free as others do. But how? You are right, Giovanni. There is an antidote. Pluck one of its blossoms and drink of the liquid from its petals, even as I have drunk of it every day. Then you can leave the garden free. Which plant, Doctor? Which is the antidote? The purple blossoms in the center of the fountain. They are my antidote. They... Father. My father. Beatrice, come, my darling. Leave him in his wonderful garden that he loved. He has given us our lives again. From the time-worn pages of the past, we have brought you the story, Rappuccini's Daughter. Bellkeeper, toll the bell. Truth is stranger than fiction. This is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. The parish clerks of Hungerford, England, for 800 years, have visited each household on the second Tuesday after Easter to collect a penny from each man for church repairs and a kiss from each woman. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about the Iron Man. Sir Thomas Overbury certainly deserves to be called a man of iron. He was imprisoned in the Tower of London and for three months and 17 days was fed a daily diet of hemlock, arsenic, nitric acid, ground diamonds and mercury, enough poison to have killed 20 men. But Sir Thomas refused to die. Finally, an injection of a powerful corrosive killed him. Later, the guards who'd been bribed to poison him were executed. Believe it or not. <laughs> And that is it for our additional content for this podcast. Again, if this is something you enjoyed, if you enjoyed the extra material, uh, let me know because then, hey, we got a handy format for, uh, in fact, this could be, be launched into, you know, for like a, a Patreon, you know, the extended um, versions when they need to. Um, again, just so just just spitballing here. But, uh, again, thank you if you're listening this long. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you enjoyed the material. Just a reminder that next weekend, or not next weekend, (laughs) 
so used to saying that. Next week, our story will be left Caddy O'Hearn's um, Earless Hoichi. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to this because I'll be able to give you some of the background for the story, including talking about Tale uh, of Heike or Heike Monogatari. Um, so we'll be spending a few minutes on that as well. But again, thank you very much. Enjoy the week. And, uh, you know, thank you for giving yours cruelly some extra time. Until next week, unpleasant dreams.